Simon and Schuster Audio presents Riots I Have Known, a novel by Ryan Chapman, read by Vikas Adam. How am I not myself? Jude Law, I Heart Huckabees. Lopez, right before they stabbed him in the yard. This was maybe last winter or the winter previous. You know what he said? He said, time makes fools of us all. To say it at the end. He knew it was the end, as he must have known and as we all must know. Such clarity. Lopez cut through years of hoary usage and conferred a real sense of gravitas upon the moment. We all felt it, all of us rubbernecking in the yard. I confess I missed the casual Friday jab to a bit of shadow from a racing cloud. It was dark and then light, and Lopez was resting against the squeaky weight bench. Everyone avoided that bench. Its high-pitched chirps neutered the masculinity an otherwise strong set was meant to advertise. Lopez. The bravery. Those moments stick with you, dear reader. Months later, I remember watching a Brando-esque scene-chewer in some Lifetime movie, it's one of the few channels we're allowed, and the actor whispered to his teary ex-wife, Time makes fools of us all. I shook my head and exclaimed to no one in particular with surprising volume, You don't know what you're talking about! Lopez, who was almost definitely stabbed in the yard last winter and not the winter previous, you remember from Volume 1, Issue 2, So My Chains May Weep Tonight, that execrable short story. For readers stuck outside the paywall, I'll summarize briefly. Rodrigo, on a dime for arson, covers the Southton Yard's cement square with soulful chalk portraits of a daughter he's never met. He guesses at the features. Her mother's nose, his own plump cheeks, big doe eyes. Lopez wrote long, dolorous paragraphs about those drawings, drawings never trampled by fellow inmates. Credulity strained. Anyway, the portrait subject grows from infancy to young adulthood, or so Rodrigo believes. Upon his release, the buoyant Rodrigo receives a conveniently timed missive from his ex-wife. She aborted the fetus a week into his incarceration. N.B. The warden loved this O. Henry-esque twist and demanded the story's inclusion. Your humble editor's protests fell on deaf ears. Thinking about it now, as the riot gathers momentum in A block and the WXHY action news action copter buzzes past in a tireless orbit, its camera surfacing whatever rabble it can find, I commend Lopez for wresting meaning out of such a trampled phrase, time makes fools of us all, instilling a measure of sublimity in the death act, a sublimity otherwise absent from his treacly prose. Mighty B. Westbrook's own Harry Crosby. Readers quick with Wikipedia will learn that Crosby, a Boston scion cum flaneur, failed as a poet, but succeeded as a patron of the arts, publishing Joyce, Eliot, some other guys. He exited spectacularly with his mistress in a ritualized murder-suicide. True, Lopez was much less foppish and much more bellicose. Still, I would suggest the old impresario lives on in our departed colleague. We envy those who go out in their own way. We all hope for the same for ourselves, and hubristically we all secretly expect to go out in our own way ourselves. 
I've seen many men, at least four, bawl and curse their attackers, be they physical, phonic, or oncological. We expect such a response. It is common and it is natural. How am I to go? I wonder. Enviable old Lopez. He took possession of his ending there in the yard, stabbed last winter, possibly the winter before, whichever one was the year of the new jackets. He collapsed by the gates, I remember, under the small pointillist cluster of black ash on the wall where everyone stubbed their cigarettes. The tenor of my own shuffling off this mortal coil will be determined by whoever first breaks down my meager barricade here in the Will and Edith Rosenberg Media Center for Journalistic Excellence in the Penal Arts. Two upended footlockers, a standard teacher's desk, a nearly complete set of Encyclopedia Britannica's 2006 edition, and a scrum of Aeron chairs fish-hooked over each other just so. If I am lucky, it'll be Warden Gertjens first over the transom. He no doubt sympathizes with my present situation and, I would hope, admits complicity in my present situation. He could be counted on for assistance in a boost hurdling the AC panel, knocking out the tempered double-paned glass, and running into the embrace of my fans, followers, and future lovers. Everyone else would surely stab me in the face. I deserve it. And this is the truth, or a truth, and the one I claim and will verify for the scurrilous Fox News fact-checkers whose emails presently flood my inbox. I am the architect of the Caligulan melee enveloping Westbrook's galleries and flats. Must this final issue of The Holding Pen be my own final chapter? Can any man control the narrative of his life, even one as influential as mine? I suppose not. And so The Holding Pen winds down in real time, complemented by breaking news updates from breathless iron-coiffed correspondents on the scene, 80,000 tweets and counting, protests by the appeals on the North Lawn, and blush-inducing slash fic on the wildwestbrook.com of improbable but emboldening reunions with my sweet McNary. Were I petty or spiteful or the kind to assign blame, I'd say this is all the Latin King's fault, an accusation supported by Diosito's narco sonnet, Mi corazón a fuego y mi plan de fuga, from Volume 1, Issue 8, Journeys. The same issue, I remember, with the popular fold-out guide to rat-tailing one's bedsheet for sliding tobacco down the flats. Spanish-speaking readers must have gleaned the Latin king's intentions from stanza one, to which your editor can only express irritation for having never received even a friendly word of warning. Yet I accept in full the public drubbing that is my due. However accidental and unforeseen its cause may have been, a public drubbing that will likely take the form of the aforementioned face-stabbing. I wish only to spend my remaining time clearing up a few inaccuracies. According to the threads, the riot started thirty minutes ago in the yard and somewhere inside A Block, then spread quickly from there. Aerial footage shows four Muslim brothers, ID'd by their bloodied kafirs, shot down in the grass a few feet from a hole in the north-northwest fence line. As usual, the brothers being headstrong and stupid in equal measure. Hashtag Westbrook Instagrams from Curious Townies reveal plumes of grey smoke from what looks like a handful of fires in A-Block. Doubtless the flamers are having the most outright fun today. Of course, the fires are nothing a wall-mounted extinguisher couldn't handle, but there's never one when you need it, and anyway, those things are like gold in the present crisis-driven economy. The helicopter cameras are also picking up a group of skinheads, 
Steve? Looks like Steve. Chucking Screw's bodies out of the cafeteria skylight into a haphazard levee on the outside wall. How did they reach the skylight? I wonder. For all their rehashed lectures on miscegenation, those guys sure are inventive. HuffPost has a top-of-the-fold photo of the north corridor windows hidden behind a stretched bedsheet bearing a message written in what looks like oven grease. Under the paving stones, parole. By the angle of their cameras, I can surmise the news crews have camped out on the dead stretch of land to the northwest in front of the yard. Surely the GSSR, with their ambulance chaser's gift for opportunism, is somewhere close. I hesitate to mention them, and their unknown-slash-unknowable acronym. Let's move on. If you're watching the footage from WXHY, you have a sense of Westbrook's blueprint. Readers have remarked upon the cognitive dissonance between the Westbrook of the mind and the Westbrook of the eye. The prison is not unlike a child's snow angel, with his left arm forming A-block, his head B-block, and his right arm C-block, laid out facing east. Central booking, Times Square, and the infirmary in the chest. Offices, the cafeteria and the library in the crotch, and D-block and E-block as the lower appendages. For the completest, I suppose A visitor's center would be the left armpit and D visitor's center the spleen, and the Will and Edith Rosenberg Media Center for Journalistic Excellence in the Penal Arts the big toe of the right foot. A rather propitious big toe, I should say, as this remote corner may just grant me the time I need. Some of you are right to ask about the much ballyhooed F-block, which, to torture the analogy further, lay a hundred yards west like a discarded boot, composed of I-beams and pallets of cement blocks covered by weather-beaten tarps. Warden Gurchins, ever the optimist, had hoped to assemble a deluxe front of house for the good behaviors and, fingers crossed, a tax-deductible location for Wes Anderson's Folsom Fantasia. The latest news from Albany is no news. Only the Diller Scofidio plus Renfro toolshed has been completed, paid for with donations by the wife of some pharma CMO and, in a bit of a stalemate, the governor's waiting on Michael Kimmelman's review of said toolshed before releasing capital funds. I've seen F-Block's blueprints and can attest to its scope and ambition, in particular the motif of elongated curved hallways, which, Warden Gertchens said, and here I presume he's quoting the brief, isolate one in space, removed from where one has come from and where one is going. No past, no future, only present. I feel a lacrimal swell and a priapic swell at such a vision and tip my hat to the architects for their spatio-temporal empathy for the incarcerated. Should the institution survive today's PR Hindenburg, naming rights are still available. Westbrook is the elder sibling to the new maximum security facilities in the Tri-County area, part of the construction boom for those politicians without recourse to gambling revenue. I'm told there's a recipe for installing a correctional facility on the outskirts of town. The base ingredients include 100 unemployed blue-collar workers and a mayor with steep alimony. I confess it was a relief to be processed here just over 24 months ago. The main campus is careworn with the peregrinations of decades of inmates, every vertical surface marked by thousands of fingernail scratches into a deep-time calligraphic frenzy. Transfers tell us fights occur with more frequency at the new institutions, as if there were a subconscious need to fill the virginal space with local history and gobbets of injury. If I may be so bold, 
The difference between these prisons and Westbrook is the difference between a house and a home. I can't smell the fires. That's a good sign. The herd hasn't spread to sea block, though I should allow for the possibility of some man-made ventilation for respiration and visibility. I'm confident I have enough time to complete my atonement and set down my reading of events as they occurred. These riots keep to a pattern. So says Wilfred, my confidant and fount of hard-won wisdom. He survived Elmira in 1981 and Pleasant Valley in 1995 and 1999 completely unscathed. The old coot knows a thing or two. He maintains three rules for these situations. One, stay in your cell and lock yourself in. Counterintuitive, yes, and against all temptation. In the rare instance someone gets to the screw station and opens the locks, it's best to tie a rolled-up sheet from the door to the window bar, doubling up if possible to ensure a taut line. Ah, you reply, but the mattress is right there. Block the gate with your mattress and they'll just smoke you out. Wilfred says dying of smoke inhalation in a prison riot is like masturbating at an orgy. If the riot is between you and your cell, avoid the flats, stairways, bathrooms, galleys, cafeteria, wood shop, metal shop, and all windows. Four-on-one assaults pop up like dandelions. Inmates have such elephant memories. 2. Hide your cigarettes under the bed slab. 3. If you possess the fortitude to knock yourself unconscious, it's a useful alibi for the exhausting post-riot investigations. Wilfred said this was easier in his youth, when a sprint into the wall was enough to do the job. Older inmates should coordinate with a riot buddy to strangle each other as simultaneously as they can manage. Were I not compelled to finish this holding pen issue slash apologia for you, I would curl up under this desk and choke myself into blissful respite. I am fortunate to have made it to the media center. I was mid-shave when I heard the call. It passed from Times Square like a caffeinated form of the telephone game, inmate by inmate, reaching me as Hefe's pulled a coup of tats with the right of spring. I didn't request or wait for clarification. Sometimes you just have to towel off, button up your jumpsuit. I perform my morning toilet half-shod for the increased range of motion and dash through e-block. I fear my detractors will have one final joke at my expense, as my three-quarter neckbeard will surely give my corpse an air of non compos mentis, despite the abundant literary evidence to the contrary. And yet... Perhaps my killers will so ruinously strike me about the head, neck, and face, and then the joke will be on them. Thinking about it now, I wonder if I've ever passed along Wilfred's advice to McNary. I certainly wouldn't expect Wilfred to volunteer it to anyone else. I had to trade a carton of cigarettes for that three-tined fork of wisdom. He swore there were nine more rules, but I was low. Does McNary know what to do? Is he safe? McNary, my friend and companion, he's the only one who ever understood me, which is to say he understood me obliquely. He never asked questions about the holding pen, or life in Sri Lanka, or those nine blue hairs, or anything about the outside, just come over after work detail, and do you like that, and a question about choking, but under different circumstances. McNary. He's the real storyteller manke of Westbrook. Faithful readers know he never formally submitted a piece. His greater contribution was what the Teutons call his geist. 
it haunts every issue. Or perhaps a benign form of haunting, if such a word exists in English. Yes, McNary's naptime monologues befit the Algonquin round table, and were I a better listener, I would faithfully transcribe here his numerous bon mots. To cite but one example, the Protestant ethic and personal Elon he brought to the hardline dogfighting scene of Jersey City. McNary carved his own niche, that is to say, St. Bernard's, plodding beasts who circled in a hypnotic rhythm conveying, McNary explained, I remember, the quintessence of the sport. The dogs moved as if in slow motion, resigned and exhausted like some young ER doctor on the tail end of a marathon shift, each bite and swipe of the paw drawing cheers from the pot-bellied Italians and the salt-haired blacks of the old neighborhoods. McNary would have been close to the cafeteria when the riot broke out. Perhaps he's holed up in a solitary cell or fighting his way through a scrum of bee-blockers. Those guys are all limbs and teeth, not a pound of muscle between the lot of them. McNary, be safe. Back to the matter at hand. I feel your concerns. I feel your concerns, and I read your concerns, and I promise to reply to your concerns. The blog comments and hashtag Westbrook Riot tweets are both sobering and salutary. They cement my resolve and double my resolve to stay the course, as it were. I'll take this cemented doubling and provide the definitive account of the rise and, it pains me to write, the fall of the holding pen. At Blondita96 and at Marco underscore Tized, I love you too. While I'm naming names, I'd like to thank Oberlin sophomore Alexis Summers for developing the content management system's auto-publish setting, an incredibly useful function on days like today with their high probability of interruption and dismemberment. It is important to write the definitive account, or rather, an official accounting of events as they happened. Let it be said, this text is authoritative, sanctioned, sealed with a kiss. The reader is likely aware of the forthcoming bit of opportunism par excellence by Betsy Pankhurst, handcuffed sex and madness with the widow killer Knuff, which I must stress is the unauthorized account, or should I say, an unauthorized account. Resist its easy prurience. I have slogged through an advanced reader's copy with rising bile, and I can objectively say it is pure slander of the lowest order. The highest order? Either way, handcuffed is a fresh wound. That Betsy is my former paramour is the salt shaken liberally upon it. A cursory Google search reveals she sold her life rights to Netflix in a major deal. More salt. If you feel any loyalty to the holding pen and to my accomplishments, indeed to our accomplishments, then you will boycott Betsy's non-canonical screed. Even here, in my last moments, the jelly of her deceit sticks to the roof of my mouth. I dwell upon the subject of Miss Pankhurst for the sole purpose of dispelling it and her from our minds. Forever. As I was saying, I believe, these riots keep to a pattern. There are rivers of mob violence, rapids of screw beatings, tributaries of looting, prescription drugs and medical, cigarettes, wherever. Everyone will funnel through central booking in a subconscious return to whence they came, Freudian stake note, where, if Wilfred is correct, the confetti of shredded inmate files will lend things a festive air. 
Then a dam burst of excitement into C-Block and the commissary, with men loosed from the hole blinking a few times and, depending on their comportment, searching out friends for tear-filled reunions or pummeling whoever's close at hand. There isn't an exact science to these things, Wilfred explained, I remember, but I estimate two, maybe three hours before the crowd winds south to E-Block. The will in Edith Rosenberg Media Center for Journalistic Excellence in the Penal Arts is at best a distraction. But what a distraction! If I may direct the reader's attention to the editor's letter of Volume 1, Issue 10, Paradise, $4.8 million in construction, a complete gut reno of the derelict movement therapy studio, that shithead Fritz was the sole practitioner, locally sourced and very locally refinished tables designed by the Auerbach brothers of Hudson, New York, the newest line of Macs with best-in-class desktop publishing software, plus Photoshop, and all those Aeron chairs. I'm told there's a projector and screen setup that descend from a discreet envelope in the ceiling, though I haven't been able to find the remote. All of this is to say your average rioter will find only brief catharsis in vandalizing the place and, given the difficulty of battering someone with a 27-inch iMac, not much else. I hope you will not think less of me for the unsavory measures I've had to take to protect and barricade myself in the media center. Measures I may take again with, I fear, increasing unsavoriness. I assure you, with hand over heart and other hand over keyboard, I only wish to give myself more time in the service of an official accounting of events as they happened. To wit, I've urinated onto the doorframe. The plastic lip bordering the carpet forms an escarpment with the hallway tile, a handy sluice for my noisome volley of psychological warfare. Or is that biological warfare? It strikes me now, as I think about it, the tactic will deter only like-minded individuals, i.e. mentally balanced individuals, and will prove futile against all others. Which begs the question, what is the efficacy of psychological warfare against the psychopath? Must I, as the Hilton Hotel's advance man once advised, think as the enemy thinks? Doing so might well guarantee my safety. It would not take much imagination or labor to render this place forbiddingly disgusting were I to continue down the path of uric and fecal redoubt. But at what cost? This cost. Completing my final work of literature with the clarity it demands. I will stay the course, psychologically speaking, with the burdensome knowledge my near-term trespassers will not think twice about a piss-laden entryway. If they take notice at all, I now realize, it will provoke further enragement, serving the opposite purpose of my original intention. One might argue the urine is an apt metaphor for this entire holding pen debacle. But they can't kill me twice. And yet... Now that I recall those involuntary courtship rituals in the showers, there's a remote but real chance the scent of urine may act as a proverbial bell to the Pavlov's dog of... Well, I hate to put such vulgarity in print, as it were. In short, a most unwelcome way to go. And what if I were rescued? My good fortune would be instantly compromised, and I would become the crazed fetishist micturating on high-end furniture. To add further impugnment, on-the-scene interviews by WXHY Action News with Tagonic Police and CERT officers place the blame squarely on yours truly. Me, your humble editor, while Diosito and the others escape scrutiny and recapture. 
not to mention Warden Gertchen's. While the mantra of the embattled egotist is the immortal, the whole thing was his idea, I would be remiss if I didn't say the whole thing was his idea. In that fateful meeting last July, I sat uncomfortably in a wingback leather chair in the warden's office while he ranted about the arbitrariness of Albany's profligacy. Forty million dollars for a Staten Island landfill to blow its toxic air south, nine million dollars for a new high school football stadium in the Bronx, whose fertilizer the local adolescents quickly learned produced a powerful hallucinogen when dried and smoked, and Warden Gertchen's favorite offender, the one smartwatch per child initiative for at-risk preschoolers. I confess I only half-listened to all this, transfixed as I was by the view outside his windows. Between wooden blinds stained the color of dark roast coffee, I could just make out the erotic blur of the interstate and the comet trails of long-haul semis. You may be interested to know this was the first time I'd ever heard the warden's voice. I'd heard stories from guys on the intake bus, caught a glimpse of the man during his cameo in the orientation video. Legend has it, Warden Gertjens found his calling as a university student in The Hague after a fateful reading of Le Corbusier's journals, specifically some eight-word parenthetical aside on prisons. It was within those parentheses the young man would live, and indeed, would thrive. In the past decade, he scurried up the corrections ladder from mealy-mouthed DOC clerk to a star CPA in selvedge denim jeans, retired at the first hint of whiskering, with a stated willingness to relocate his wife and two young daughters at a moment's notice should a better position arise. He filled his intellectual diet with nightly binges of dense academic journals, criminal psychology, incarcerated psychopathology, and the brutal elegance of institutions. Looking around his office, I noted framed commendations from prisons in Oklahoma, Alaska, even California. Which is not to ignore his greatest skill, the very reason for my fateful meeting. For Ut Gertchens was a born rainmaker, adept at navigating Albany's labyrinthine back channels, playing tennis with the DC mockers, and defending enhanced interrogations and op-eds for the New Republic and Apartmento. The warden was not without his flaws, of course, but unlike most visionaries, he operated in an environment in which his most vocal critics could be shackled and sedated. I snapped to attention as his speech rose in pitch. There was an unmistakable ebullience under his words, a childlike giddiness behind the probity. Apparently a fence-jumper in Nyack had buggered a bunch of latchkey kids. This, the warden explained, I remember was good news for Westbrook, as the escapee, John Ray Jones or Joe Ray Jones, something like that, you can look it up, had become an unkillable talking point for conservatives. Imus did three shows, Rush did five. They both blamed the soft-on-guns guard tower CO. Sean Hannity organized his million concealed weapons march on the National Mall. The constituency, the warden said, pushing up the sleeves on his black turtleneck, was riled up. His tone reminded me of something I'd learned from Father Christopher, learned and then promptly forgot, and then recalled out of the blue that day in the warden's office. That is, the tradition of the Hierophant. I felt it in my chest and in my bladder. Here was an interpreter of the holy. The warden said Senator Mosier, in all her Thatcherite wisdom, was in the process of adding generous earmarks for getting tougher on crime. Though I've always considered myself something of a political agnostic, 
I remember nodding. I remember replying that getting tough on crime was a good idea, a great idea, the greatest idea I'd ever heard. Warden Gertjens then outlined a new prison newsletter, a journal of the arts, sympathetic to the incarcerated subject and the reforms unique to Westbrook. I was now the editor-in-chief of a one-man editorial department. This was motivation enough to do my very best, and naturally I was well suited to it. My Jesuit education was a pronounced advantage in a job market of subliterates and Philistines. The warden also cited my lack of gang affiliation and, here he consulted some papers on his desk, my psych eval's Rubin test indicated I was a questioner, a rarity among the local population. If I grant myself a moment of self-flattery, it should be said I always go the distance in completing whatever task I'm charged with carrying out. I'm practically famous for it. The warden concluded our meeting by saying failure on my part would earn ten weeks in solitary. I should clarify, it's true that a handful of inmates dedicate themselves to betterment through distance learning and our Reform the Future workshops. But these studious souls are always child rapists, and their autodidacticism is both a function of and a solution to the endless alone time suffered by the incarcerated pariah. A total waste. The smartest men at Westbrook were the same men you never wanted to talk to and wouldn't be caught dead with. From the very first issue of The Holding Pen, it was a matter of personal integrity to never publish their submissions, even though, as you would expect, their work showed the highest literary merit. At this moment, these blighted scholars are likely somewhere in C-Block experiencing a robust bludgeoning. The pedos are just magnets for abuse. I admit to a slight wince when I think of their work. Forever lost to the dustbin of history. In response to at GenGirl98's tweet, Do we enjoy Annie Hall less, knowing its director, writer, and star conducted sexual relations with his adopted daughter? And if we do enjoy it less, what of the contrast between the filmmaker's moral ugliness and the very existence of his lauded artistic creation? Might this tension create an aesthetic criterion unique to the work and its ilk? Might we then enjoy less those otherwise normal entertainments by artists we've deemed faultless, cognizant, as we must be, of the absence of this new tension. And what might faultless mean in such context? It is an almost comic judgment, relying purely on the biographical information available to us which, if impeccable, cannot be anything but partial. In response to at GenGirl 98's response, Charges of the pot calling the kettle black only further proves my thesis. As for my own artistic position, it is undoubtedly shaped by the whiff of destiny that seems to accompany my adventures, misadventures, and multiple felonies. I would suggest a genetic predisposition to a life in letters, and perhaps the warden intuited this on a subconscious or pheromonal level when he charged me with spearheading the holding pen. I would cite my paternal grandfather, Eloy, by no means a learned man, who supplemented the revenue from his roadside mango stand with scuba excursions for expat Brits, at that time a degenerative lot, too louche for London but not louche enough for Tangiers. They would decamp to Ceylon, as they insisted on calling it, a name I found degrading on a phonetic level in addition to the obvious colonial affront, sounding as it does like that anti-Semitic French novelist. Grandfather Eloy found steady work under none other than Arthur C. Clarke, 
a true undersea enthusiast and a true overland asshole. Always talking, Grandfather Eloy complained. It's possible the man's memories were colored by bitterness. He was diving with Clark when they chanced upon the ruins of the famous Koneswaram Temple, a discovery of no small archaeological importance. This was, of course, the same temple the Portuguese had pushed off a cliff in the 1600s and, like Tenzing Norgay three years earlier, my grandfather received no credit in the international press. He won local renown. In Trincomalee, this is akin to being named the tallest midget. Clark oversaw the Hindu temple's rescue and preservation, enlisting my grandfather as a go-between for, it must be said, lucrative rates. I would argue this proximity to literature, if you will, seeped into Grandfather Eloy's DNA in some osmotic fashion, recombining over the decades and biding its time until finding expression in these very words. Some of you might be interested in a bit of family lore. Grandfather Eloy was a stoic character. One evening, as the skiff made its way into shore, Clark asked him what occupied his thoughts all day. Apes fighting, Grandfather said, perhaps in jest, perhaps not. Clark spit into his scuba mask, wiped, looked off at the receding waves, and replied, Apes? Indeed. It appears as though the appeals have begun a chorus of jump-rope chants to liven the mood and promote light cardiovascular exercise. News cameramen on their union breaks are joining in with impressive fleet-footedness. I can't make out the words in the Snapchat footage, but there's a positive vibe to it all. My brothers in arms, I am with you in solidarity and for four time. To counter some of the pushback regarding egotism and regarding post-penal lit hegemony, the holding pen does not imply any kind of monopoly on the cultural output of Westbrook. Far from it. In fact, the holding pen wasn't the warden's first attempt at pecuniary support via lefty human interest stories, as he put it, I remember. For instance, there was the I Made This initiative named for a stamp on the belts exported to East Coast menswear boutiques with accompanying tags featuring photographs of each felon maker in three-quarters profile, a total failure with the exception of those fashioned by Giuseppe Milani, fifth-generation leather worker and first-generation arsonist. I believe a local garment workers' union scuttled the project a few months into my sentence. As for the brief run of the sandwich shop Open Faces of Death, the less said the better. If we were to narrow our scope to literary matters, the holding pen is but the most recent in a long line of rehabilitative ecree here at Westbrook. There are the writings of Mookie Jeff Sanders, who from his incarceration in 1988 to his death in 2002, heart attack, the lucky bastard, churned out voluminous period romances for Avon under the nom de plume Raleigh de la Cruz, An Affair of the Heart, Scarlet Sands, the Francophone Lieutenant's Woman. Sanders attributed his consistent sales at Bible Belt grocery stores to an unwavering formula of biracial female protagonists kidnapped by marauding pirates and, after a few chapters of lusty tension, rescue from implied sex slavery by a velvet-gloved naval officer with a non-debilitating physical weakness. From his Rita Award acceptance speech, Eye Patches Work, IBS Not So Much. And folk artificionados may know Cromwell Eberhardy's finger painting from the art forum debate in the late 1980s. 
Should his work be read as abstract expressionism or, given the artist's impaired mental and visual acuity, social realism? Criminologists know him from the 1959 Eberhardy family reunion shooting spree in San Luis Obispo. Obviously, neither of these precedents benefited from the warden's tutelage and resources. From Matt Biddle's 9,000-word Washington Post weekend profile, which I admit I've only skimmed, Gertjens's Manichaean nature manifests itself publicly as a beneficent modern Rockefeller dressed down like a bobo architect, with whispers of political aspirations trailing every successful initiative. Meanwhile, his callowness expresses itself via eBay bids on Wegner wishbone chairs one might characterize as both promiscuous and paroxysmal, in addition to fiscally irresponsible institutional expenditures that make the Sultan of Brunei look like Susie Orman. I would never condone such defamation. Warden Gertchens has always ruled fairly, as they say, nor would I bite the hand that feeds. But if I may nibble it for a moment, it must be said the warden was and is quite power-hungry. You know the first thing he told me after he told me about the holding pen on that epic-defining day last July? I'm paraphrasing, of course. But it was something like, those mini-sec hippies at Bright Horizons just got themselves a Good Morning America segment for their Cupcakes Not Bombs program, if you can believe it. An Ivan Boskyish born-again, transported at great expense from New Paltz's gleaming big house on the hill to the show's Manhattan studios, sat across from George Stephanopoulos and said, in the clear cadences of the media trained, I want to repay my debt to society in trade. If Iran will halt its nuclear production facilities, my fellow inmates and I will send every man, woman, and child in Tehran a delicious gluten-free cupcake. Those words actually came out of the prisoner's mouth. On national television, no less, Warden Gertjen said, I remember. You can visit the GMA site and watch it yourself. Cupcakes Not Bombs even received a generous NEA grant. A bit of fundraising jujitsu, the warden admitted he found novel and worthy a modicum of respect. As for Westbrook, he wanted to think bigger, something with exponential PR opportunities. How was Warden Gertjens to know the holding pen would become his undoing? He was quite narrow-minded. Narrow-minded and self-interested to a sizable fault. The holding pen is greater than Westbrook your humble editor included, and as Sherman's march rages through B-block and C-block, or more specifically Sherman's parade of stabbing and looting, it is important to consider the holding pen in toto as a work of literature, with the appropriate critical framework this phrase implies and connotes and perhaps even denotes. A critical framework that is better imagined as, say, a critical latticework or, if you will, a critical escalier of faddish hermeneutics, correctional epistemologies, and Pinteresque moments of silence during Slate podcasts. Today's topic, gentlemen. Who is the incarcerated man in the 21st century? Well, Dana, isn't he... all of us? Each of these threads, or, I suppose, all of these threads, reticulate in a critical trellis up to the lofty balcony of understanding. We all know it is not true understanding we find on that balcony, but a mere peak, 
And, sprouting up from the balcony floor, another critical latticework, vertiginous and hackles-raising, unnerving, seductive. The seduction, I would aver, of a work of literature. One need look no further than the poetry that inspired the riot in the first place. If that's the right word, inspired. It is a well-established fact 99.99% of penal verse is awful, the inbred cousin of slam poetry with the emotional range of a Wikipedia stub. Which shows you just how much the Latin King's piece surprised me in the most pleasant way, and by that I mean the writing itself, not their submission process, which was decidedly unpleasant and need not be discussed. There was an aspirational current to the language, a sense of, dare I say, spiritual possibility untethered from their shop-worn Roman Catholicism and yet grounded by a rawness at the verse's core. Nobody would confuse it for poetry composed on the outside. Crucial to all of this was the acknowledgement of moral consequence, elevating the work above self-pity or self-congratulation. Please, God, no more street-cred villanelles. Copy-editing Diosito's piece, I remember... It was as if mi corazón a fuego a mi plan de fuga didn't end on the page, as if the last stanza were an appeal to the reader to continue the poem in his own head and in his own hand. This is the kind of voice the Will and Edith Rosenberg Media Center for Journalistic Excellence in the Penal Arts Champions and was built to champion further, or rather was built with the goal of championing. I still find Diosito's first sheaf of verse galvanizing, despite what happened later, or more precisely, what happened ninety minutes ago. I presented the poem in Volume 1, Issue 8, Journeys, in the original Spanish, with the faith and trust curious readers would perform the translation work themselves. Folios are for plebes. The warden signs off on every issue, and I realized too late he doesn't speak Spanish either. He must have felt the same force of talent, must have intuited its power despite the pedestrian hurdle of fluency. His editorial note read, I remember, more like this, ups the otherness, good for reaching across the aisle with respect to money. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to reproduce a stanza from that first piece, courtesy of Google Translate. At the magic hour we will meet. I in yellow. Rising like the phoenix, you in white, the exterminating angel. Coming from unnamed roads, coming from the southwest, with bolt cutters. On one level, Diosito's intended reading is, I suppose, literally prophetic. But on another, deeper level, it is also figuratively prophetic. For how can one ignore the renaissance of the Latin America narco-ode in Juarez, in San Diego, in Cozumel? Is not the work's literary influence the only criterion against which it can be judged and should be judged? Like Pound's Café, the words shed their obfuscating meaning for a libertine clarity. The world could use a few more diositos. Fox News Live at Five reports the poet and his two or possibly three, associates are still at large. Roadblocks have been erected at all major and rural points of egress. And so Diosito escaped to Nueva York, while I type this selfless autopanegyric from the confines of the media center, which will most assuredly become my tomb. If I allow a momentary digression, I am flattered by the Kickstarter campaign to print and publish this blog post in Lux Leatherbound Editions.
My flattery only deepens with the knowledge these collector's items are to be produced by Samuel Edmondson, Jr., the artisanal bookbinder of Bozeman, Montana, with a 20,000-square-foot workshop, and MacArthur Genius Grant to his name. Journalistic ethics prevent me from linking to this fundraising campaign. At 55% of its goal after one hour, not to mention the impermeable rules a work of literature abides by vis-à-vis -vis merchandising. Still... Flattered. A word on the merchandising. Though many products and services bear the mark of the holding pen, yours truly has never sought restitution for even a thin slice of what I imagine to be a very large pie. There's the O-Bastard-Faced Triple Stout at celebrated Danish beer hall Torst in Brooklyn, a limited-edition Lucite slipcase for issues 1 through 10, designed by Tom Dixon and available exclusively at opening ceremony, jumpsuits in orange colorways by Oshkosh Black Label, Westbrook poppers at TGIF locations along the Northeast Corridor, the moleskin, naturally, and room 213 of the Ace Hotel Bronx featuring a custom wallpaper of holding pen covers and contributors' mugshots. I'm told the more licentious residents gyrate against McNary's wan expression, the moire pattern contributing to his come-hither stare. All that money goes straight to Warden Gertjens' discretionary fund and, as far as I am concerned, it's just as well. I am not a marketer. I am a man of letters. Which is not to say I'm infallible, or that it was an easy road to hoe, as it were. Was the holding pen a success from its very first issue? Your comments say yes, and fuck yes, and in one case a confusing string of eggplant emoji. In truth, this august publication navigated storm-tossed waters and a mutinous crew to reach its present shores of literary Valhalla. In that fateful midsummer meeting with Warden Gertjens, he hadn't given much direction beyond a name and a four-week turnaround for the debut issue. The ebullience I felt in his office, sitting in the wing-back chair, I remember, soon turned to doubt and then succumbed to doubt's enabling cousin, outright terror. The doubt was nothing more than the feelings of inadequacy shared by all great men embarking upon a new project. The terror, on the other hand, was unique to my situation at Westbrook. How to cover a population whose criticism arrived knives out. To be clear, I take no issue with the debate over the journalist's intention and execution, such give and take as the very meat and gristle of the profession. Rather, as I lay in bed that summer evening, unable to sleep, listening to the guttural rumble of long haulers on I-105 bouncing off low cloud cover, I became fixated on the axiom, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. The words floated in the blue air of night, dreamlike and oracular. How to explain the nuances of the journalist-subject relationship and its inevitable betrayals to a pugnacious subject like O Bastard Face? Janet Malcolm, hear my cry! Surely your reportage never bore such short-fuse scrutiny. I tell you with complete disclosure, those first few days were hell on the gastrointestinal routine, as bad as my first month at Westbrook. I would like to note the toilets are cemented to the rear wall and so face the cell gate and, by extension, anyone walking past. The toilets themselves are molded from a single shell, made in Taiwan, with a cold water tap and sink basin on the left. While this arrangement dissuades furtiveness, you can still make toilet wine with a bit of practice and patience. It takes getting used to. 
new fish might puff their chests. But we are all united in weak one bladder shyness. A personal Everest every man conquers on his own, or perhaps a universal Everest every man must conquer in his own way. All but the most fibrous among us knows this, and must conquer it in this most public fashion, sometimes under the unblinking eyes of a screw like Wooderson just standing there, staring and drawling, in the voice of an incredulous, much-put-upon-blaxploitation star, a long and slow shit. To those who suffer from a similar malady, I cannot stress enough the importance of visualization exercises. I have found solace and ameliorative release, for instance, Imagining myself in the climax of the 1986 film The Mission as Academy Award winner Jeremy Irons going over the primeval waterfall on that makeshift crucifix. I suppose all crucifixes are makeshift. I am Pear Irons, the fallen and falling missionary, and also at the same time I am the rushing gallons of viscous river water, a kind of anthropomorphized fecal tumult that can best be described as freeing. Incidentally, Appeals members know The Mission was Father Christopher's favorite film. McNary's own method, which I hope doesn't breach a confidence in sharing with you, he travels in his mind's eye to Giants Stadium on game day where he is seated in the upper bleachers amidst an ongoing triumphal roar by 40,000 screaming fans. He looks up and sees his own face splashed across the jumbotron, his bathroom session broadcast to and accompanied by fellow diehards chanting, Go! 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 McNary reports a 100% success rate. Is that a bullhorn? Are the state police here? A quick glance at the geotagged Instagrams show that, yes, the state police installed themselves behind the GSSR's camp and are taking their sweet time strapping on the riot gear. My guess is they'll wait a bit before rushing the place. The media exposure demands the most meticulous and professional adherence to protocol. We're all on display, one might argue, or I am arguing, including, unfortunately, the GSSR. It's their bullhorn I hear, held by none other than Miss Rothschild's granddaughter. I always suspected a fundraising connection between the group and the Baronet's ladies next of kin. I can't remember her name, Tulip or Rose or Flora. I'd heard she was taking a gap year before Yale. Is she building wells in Papua New Guinea? Volunteering at the local Salvation Army? No. She's waving what looks like Palo Santo sticks and chanting, he took my Nana's voice, now let's take his. It's easy to find fault with the GSSR, but I do respect their passion. The Holding Pen's splinter group of readers have published a half-dozen manifestos on intifada nostalgia, which garner audiences out of proportion to the merits, and I suppose I should be more troubled by the group's radicalization these past few months. The GSSR falsely alleges the Holding Pen's best work was its early stuff, when they were just doing it for themselves, and calls for an abrupt dismantling of the scaffolding of the infrastructure of destructive affection, whatever that means. I admit even mentioning their activities and presence outside, and presence here in these pages, taints the purity of this literary endeavor, and so I will do my best to ignore them. I see my brief mention of O Bastard Face earlier has revived that old tempest. While I hope to avoid feeding the trolls, as Marty Baron once advised, 
I shall address the vociferous lemmings blitzing the subreddits. Much has been made of how a convict serving eleven back-to-back life sentences raised a six-figure legal defense fund at a three-day festival of the Juggalos in Duluth, Minnesota. Much has also been made of his coterie of movie producers and their quarterly research visits to Westbrook, the fruits of which produced nearly a hundred cable TV thrillers, Dark Blackness, The Knife of Evil, Blood Passion, Fetal Vision. Personal safety prevents me from besmirching the man here, but I remain skeptical of the endless font of gory detail O Bastardface provides his flop-sweated sycophants year in and year out. A close reading strains psychological verisimilitude. At age 16, he favored hammers. At 18, frozen bananas. His sole remaining mystery, the only story he's yet to share with his rabid fan base, concerns the provenance of that Medusa-like face tattoo. Its rich greens and goldenrods has been inked in phases, indicating needlework by a professional, i.e. no stick-and-poke inside job. Because of the man's imposing height, you first notice the two webbed feet on his pockmarked right jowl, then the vertiginous legs enjoined in a lithe torso, convex like a kidney bean, expanding into a large anurin visage. With a showman's grin and oversized eyes, and traversing O'Bastard Face's ruddy forehead, a spindly arm and four-fingered hand brandishing a top hat with Vegas Elon. Everyone inside knows how to divert your eyes in the hallways, in the yard, in the showers. Personally, I find O'Bastard Face's tattoo a parenthetical levity to his otherwise brutal mien. It should be noted face tattoos are fairly common. You have the Aryans' inked eyebrows, the Latin kings' jaw-lined bumper-sticker phrases, the teardrops on everyone. O'Bastard Face stood out because, well, his tattoo is a cartoon. His witless defenders can flood the comment threads all they like. Their hero is likely disemboweling another inmate at this very moment, working his way through the riot like a salmon swimming upstream. Looking out the plexiglass window behind my desktop, it strikes me that he isn't attempting escape at all. This is O'Bastard Face's spring break. He's going wild. I only hope I can complete this testimonial before the psychopath breaks through my patchwork barricade. Though in all honesty, psychopath is not exactly correct. O'Bastard Face used the term, a reflexive act of bravado common in Westbrook and exaggerated among new fish. Oh, sure, son, I'm bipolar with violent tendencies. Me? Respect? I got that impulse disorder. I got that Oedipal complex with rage issues. New fish were also known to butch up their rap sheets, trading drug sentences for vengeance-fueled homicides cribbed from the cinematic work of Denzel Washington. This boastfulness went unchecked until 23 months ago with the retirement of octogenarian prison shrink Dr. Gareth Edwards. After decades of half-hearted psychoanalysis, or possibly full-hearted and incompetent psychoanalysis, nobody aspires to land at a place like Westbrook, Dr. Edwards is gone, but not forgotten, as they say. He left his Freudian thumbprint on the old-timers' psyches. Ask any of them about childhood, and they'll ramble on about recovered memories of their father touching their penis, or their brother touching their penis, or their touching of their own penis, but, you know, aggressively. The rumor is Dr. Edwards retired to a Dutch colonial fixer-upper in Old Chatham. I always saw him as a Bucks County type.
Anyways, to return to the thrust of it, his successor was an eager young Turk out of MIT's Comp Neuro program, combining the work of post-structural Jacques Lacan and network theorist Albert Laszlo Barbasi. I tip my hat to the clever inmate who first deduced the good doctor's particular weakness. Any appeal to his pride. Doctor, you seem to do so well with Rodriguez's OCD. He's finally on the path to balanced mental health. And the young doctor couldn't help himself. I'm glad to hear that you're taking this practice seriously, though to be fair to Mr. Rodriguez, it's nothing more than mild neuroticism, not the woefully overdiagnosed obsessive-compulsive disorder. Your friend's problems can be traced to the divorce of his parents during prepubescence. You can guess what followed. When virulent psychopathy was reduced to yawn-inducing barren webs of circumstantial hostility, everyone became a pussy. Well, almost everyone. The worst among us, O'Bastard Face included, confounded the young doctor and escaped his progressive diagnoses the maniacal peccadilloes hiding in plain sight, as they say. These men interpreted this label-free label as a badge of pride around the flats. I am beyond science. I am beyond language. Or that's what they would have said if the circumstances of their psychoanalytic quandary did not preclude such self-knowledge. I, for one, remain thankful for the doctor's corrective influence elsewhere. Fact-checking the holding pen's contributor bios was difficult enough. I grew up hard on the streets of North Orlando. I was jacking cars by ten and icing snitches by twelve. As if there weren't enough pressure to faithfully complete this final editor's letter, as if my editorial foxhole weren't already assailed by the shelling of naysayers and myopic old garters, it appears as though Betsy is en route, wending up the Taconic in what I believe is her roommate's Honda Civic and wearing her boyfriend's college sweatshirt. I'm told he's a Ph.D. candidate in Cornell's School of Rooftop Agriculture. Betsy's polluting her Instagram stream with battings of eyelashes and poorly drawn peace signs. My readers and confidants, if you have any respect for my editorial project, nay, my life's work, you will ignore her meretricious who-me faces. And though I am not the type to dwell on the hypocrisy of others, New York State's texting and driving laws are quite stringent. The woman providing ample evidence of breaking such laws is the very same whose holier-than-thou position infests handcuffed with lines like the 240 residents of the Baronets, a bastion of old-world money on one of Manhattan's toniest blocks, had little reason to suspect their trusty doorman was a monster hiding in their midst. That is, until it was too late. No. Her arrival is most unwelcome, and I admit I do take a measure of solace in her inevitable delay by the crowd of upstate weekenders sharing the road, a mile-long centipede of Saabs and Audis inching along the parkway. In response to her latest venomous gif, let me defend myself and say, I love women. A single rat darted across the hallway just now, I caught a frantic movement as I glanced away from the computer through the window of the media center. He was on the small side, with soft brown hair and the cautiousness of an emissary in hostile territory. Colonizer. I should have expected as much. Rather, I do expect as much. The media center is just a few days old, and it's only a matter of time before the rats move in. 
everything gleamed at the dedication ceremony last month, I'd been invited to attend as window dressing for the photo ops. The Rosenberg kid, a tow-headed alpha male sporting the tan of the permanently summering, spoke with casual eloquence at the ribbon-cutting. He referred to his notes only in passing. My father has been called a pillar of the community. He's been called a model citizen. But to me, he will always just be dad. The man who would play games of horse in our driveway for hours. The man who stayed up until midnight just to Skype during my Morgan Stanley internship in Tokyo. My father wasn't the type for greeting card wisdom. But he did say something that I will never forget. At my Wharton graduation, he took me aside and said, Live your life with a vision of what they'll put your name on after you die. It could be a street, a park bench, the wing of an art museum, maybe a presidential library. Ha <laughs> ha! But I believe this place honors my father, and it honors my mother, and it honors their twin passions for rehabilitation and computer solitaire. I hope you incarcerated gentlemen use this facility and someday become the pillars of your community. The rat is inauspicious. Whoever drove our little friend here must be getting close. For now the hallway has the fresh absence of a school corridor in summer. Peaceful and unnatural. It will not last. It's six p.m. Six p.m.? I'd lost track of time, incredibly enough. On any other day, 6 p.m. would be religious services, continuing ed, anger management sessions, N-A-A-A, what have you. McNary and I might donut if the screw on duty looked the other way, knotting a sheet over the bars for privacy, sliding a one-pound weight over the shaft of McNary's dick, and working up to a rutting I always found refreshingly choleric. The cold cement plate against the buttocks operates as a choker might in a BDSM coupling, with the synesthetic bonus of semi-legible indentations courtesy of the plates raised made in USA. But, you know, backwards. Donutting's very hot. I cannot recommend it enough. It's incredible how open I've become inside. I remember my nervousness our first time. To be precise, I wasn't nervous until the moment of as it were. We were shuffling past a janitor closet after PM lineup, and McNary took cheeky advantage of my blind spot, tossing me in as one might toss his shirt into the hamper. Naturally, my first thought was, here comes the stabbing. I'd been in ten or eleven weeks. I'd observed my surroundings, and though I'm not a fearful man, I am a realist. If you'll excuse the gallows humor, I was surprised in more than one sense, by the other kind of stabbing which followed. McNary's rough approach was essential to remove my lifelong politesse, as I'll call it. He assured me I wouldn't enjoy it the first ten times as he fucked the Catholic out of me. Cries of apostasy went unacknowledged. Afterward, in the humid quiet, McNary took a pretend drag on a cigarette and said, You know the three rules of anal sex? I shrugged. He counted on the fingers of his right hand. Location, location, location. Sweet McNary. Even now I can see that slight discoloration at your navel. It hangs before me like a celestial burst of lusty melanin. How I yearn to kiss and lick it one more time, to bite your thick rope of stomach and fill my mouth with your sweat.
I see your hashtag Westbrook Riot tweets, where I'm told donutting is popular in the Georgia and Arkansas institutions. Who knew? I could write of my sentimental education for hours, but I must look past the fence line, as Dr. Edwards would say, and return to my confession. Though my editorial stewardship has been called revolutionary, the nation, and reminiscent of early Gautier, Vogue, I still put my jumpsuit on one leg at a time. I prepared the inaugural issue of The Holding Pen in an unused vocational studies room flailing without compass or rudder. Three or four days passed before the answer struck me with forehead-smacking clarity. I should copy someone else's work. But whose? National Geographic is a revered publication, and reverence is nothing if not pliable. I reasoned I could reshape it to fit my needs and hope for an afterglow of professionalism. I should note that I hadn't yet actually read National Geographic, which speaks to the power of its brand. I visited the Westbrook Library, though library isn't the right word. It was an alcove with a door, too small to even turn around in. Squat bookcases heaved with mass-market paperbacks and Reader's Digest omnibi. Good old Wilfred acted as our librarian, more in name than in function, often napping on a stool with his back to the decade-old PC resting on a card table. I was one of the only patrons, or anyway one of the only lenders. The others just wanted the computer time or one of the law books for aspirational underlining. I must thank Wilfred for his generosity. He bent the rules regarding the number of loaned titles. A limit of twelve at a time— except for the Bible and the Koran, or rather I should say the Bible or the Koran, you could always append that to your call slip. The Torah didn't see much use. The first time Wilfred slipped an extra atop the pile, an old pocketbook's edition of Ambrose Beer's stories I'd waitlisted via interlibrary loan, Westbrook, New Horizons, a handful of Bergen County facilities, Vassar, the first time he gave me the nod I felt an illicit charge in my veins. Of course, the screws counted during sell-throws, but they chalked it up to special privileges. My collecting started in September, and within a month my cell was crowded with perilous towers circling the bed slab. And with those books, mostly library cast-offs or rejected inheritances, hence all the reader's digests, the living histories of the objects themselves, tattooed with toilet wine stains, Twombly-esque marginalia, and many... Many pages stuck together. The towers got to be four feet, five feet tall. Screws would shake the bars without result, as if the stacks were possessed of an inner architecture outside of physics, outside of Westbrook Law. In my initial reconnaissance, Wilfred said no other prison published a regular journal of arts and letters, as far as he knew. It was here that I began to understand the importance of the endeavor, if such a word can capture all that has since been unleashed and transformed and traduced. I admit now, hat in hand, I'd not originally planned anything more than the minimum required effort to satisfy Warden Gertchen's, the minimum required effort being my personal preference for going along to get along inside. I'd seen time beat the enthusiasm out of even the sunniest inmate. It beats everything else out, too. Incredible as it seems, I was asleep to my true self, asleep to the life of the artist. I've since drunk deeply from the cup of wisdom, replenished with Ted Talks and Tropic of Cancer. You see, the artist, 
stands alone. He stands alone from his people, and at the same time among his people, not unlike the incarcerated man at once inside of and outside of society. You might argue because of this I have a doubled artistic temperament, or at least a concentrated artistic temperament. I don't expect my critics or my lawyer or those blue hairs families to understand. They delineated small lives for themselves. They never sought the edge of the cliff. Reader, you alone are my confessor and my ally. These words, my testament and my ablution. In a way I have always sought the cliff's edge, be it the figurative cliff of artistic ambition or the literal cliff back in Trincomalee's North Bay. Does it surprise the reader to learn I often hiked that mountain in my youth? I know how treacly it sounds. I wince as I type these words. If only those adolescent saunters were more original than simply gazing out at the refulgent waves. But there you have it. In my defense, it was about the only thing to do in Trinco. Our lone soccer pitch had been annexed by a pack of mangy dogs, and bicycling was hazardous with the cordons of army trucks kicking up clouds of thick red-brown earth. When I wasn't tending to my studies with Father Christopher, I scaled the mountain and gazed out at those endless refulgent waves. Twice, I saw Tamil tigers, skippers, bearing south, their leaping bows hitting the water with shallow thunderclaps, their occupants standing defiant with to-do lists and purpose. I remember one springtime weekday, Father Christopher took me aside, wished me a blessed fourteenth birthday, and informed me playtime was now considered idle time, and idleness was to be avoided at all costs. He needn't have said anything more, and in fact, he didn't say anything more. I caught the conspiratorial look in his eye and knew I was being summoned to the hallowed local trade, catering to the whims of tourists. Today's visitors can pick from luxury all-inclusives huddled on the coast cheek by jowl and financed by the Chinese and the UAE and Ian Schrager Company, but back in those days there was only the palm and the ocean view, both owned by a Portuguese couple, the De Silvas, decent people with embarrassing accents. Mr. and Mrs. De Silva reminisced often about the Golden Age, by which I took to mean the 1950s. I see now my Golden Age was just beginning. My teen years coincided with the drawdown of the conflict, plus I had the additional good fortune to be born Dutch Burger, part of the local clerisy, and, when it came to the separatists, neither here nor there. As any ethnographer of the subcontinent will tell you, I was bred to sniff out opportunities where others detect moral compromise. The tigers stapled people to the roads, President Rajapaksa volleyed grenades into the camps, and I sought my fortune. Before you judge me, wasn't it your Thomas Jefferson who said a country needs destroyers and rebuilders? Well, the destroyers performed admirably. Now it was my turn. The tapestry of progress is threaded with capitalism, or so the Hilton Hotel's advance man said, and I was his servant at the loom. A charming Brit with patrician manners, he installed himself in the Palms Honeymoon Villa and perched on the same bar stool every evening with a sheaf of paperwork, sipping birdbath Negronis and half-watching the European children play with a life-size set of checkers on the beach. I wish I could tell you what it was about me that first drew his attention. 
Perhaps he could sense my industriousness and moral flexibility in the way I swept the fallen palm fronds from the hotel's walkways. Or maybe Father Christopher's francophilia had insisted a continental bearing in my demeanor, setting me apart from the other groundskeepers. Whatever the reason, it brought the hand of fate to rest on my shoulder, ask if I had a moment. I remember it now. The hand of fate was quite pale, with blonde hair on the knuckles and a pinky ring from a magical land named Eton. The Hilton Hotel's advance man possessed the ease and bluntness of the born salesman, and in short order he'd prized my biography out of me. My biography and my half-formed aspirations, though in truth half is being generous. By then I'd already put in three years with the De Silvas, and he was the first person to ask me what I thought about anything of consequence, the first person to see me as capable of great things. I was wholly receptive to his need for the swiftest paths through Trinco's jungle of bureaucracy in securing commercial zoning permits on beachfront properties which may or may not have been assigned to tsunami relief housing. In this case, the housing did exist and was in use, but its inhabitants, tigers' widows and or magistrates' mistresses, were an easily displaced lot, nothing a few official-looking mailers in borrowed army uniforms couldn't solve. Additionally, the Hilton Hotel's advance man needed to know the respectful amounts of the many remunerative incentives for said magistrates, explaining that one-time bribes do little to cement the blood oath trust required for large-scale development projects. We're in this for the long haul, my boy. I brought on my friends Rajit and Georgie to assist in the delivery of these remunerations, the schedule of which was entirely my purview and, I must say, a source of pride. I'd entered management. Speaking of trust, I knew I'd have to assure the Hilton Hotel's advance man of his decision to work with a go-between such as myself. I introduced him to the Colombo municipal official who, during tea service at the Gallface and Iraq at the captain, verified the magistrate was indeed cutting through the red tape as promised. As a fillip to the proceedings, I had the Colombo municipal official lament the absence of scrambled egg breakfasts and American beer at the Palm and the Ocean View, amenities the Hilton Hotel's advance man's Hilton Hotel would bring to Trinco. The Hilton Hotel's advance man also stressed the importance of a work-life balance, a strange term that caught on my tongue. He all but demanded three-day sojourns to Colombo, providing a list of recommended nightclubs and brothels. Grand opening had, and might still have, the best lunch buffet. Rajat and I would freeze in the overnight train's first-class cabin under an industrial AC unit, watching it drip onto the mounted color TV and taking bets when it would short out. We had no illusions. We knew everyone saw us as slow-gated upcountry folk, but an embarrassment on our part was subsumed by the general jubilation of the weekender on payday, as well as the specific jubilation of the weekender spending his payday on prostitutes. Which is not to say I was a total spendthrift. For that I must credit Father Christopher's financial acumen. While Rajat blew his earnings, I socked 60% in an HSBC online savings account recommended by the Hilton Hotel's advance man. My needs were modest, and still are, really. I slept in one of the nondescript guard huts lining the Nilavelli beach, 
Tourists confused them for lifeguard stations, a joke that never failed to get a laugh with the women at grand opening, and entertained myself with the English-language books discarded by tourists. Nora Roberts, Patrick O'Brien, Jack Welch. After slogging through the classics at school, this was something of a revelation. Though if I'm to be precise, my reading of the classics was done aloud, in fulfillment of my duties as Father Christopher's aide-de-camp, and not entirely for myself, as it were. The man's failing eyesight and the alcoholic handicap of the local optometrist meant daily recitations of favorite novels and philosophical tracts, the two of us sitting in teak rocking chairs and facing the bustling town square, now and then pausing to wave off the same three beggars. While I don't regret my time with Father Christopher, I do wish we'd ended our sessions before 5 p.m. when the nursing school on the east side discharged its comely students. My hometown abstinence in those days was most certainly buttressed by the emasculating display of reading Proust to the town's living symbol of fervent rectitude. A word on the books themselves. I figured Father Christopher's taste had less to do with the sonorousness of the French language or the existentialism of its literature, which, I later appreciated, swaddled the frazzled intellects of the war-torn country in a blanket of individualist redress. No. I assumed Father Christopher loved the French because they were one of the few European countries to never bother colonizing us. One day, after yet another slog through Temps Perdu, Father Christopher asked how the work was going. He said it just like that, or in an approximate Sinhalese idiom. I was impressed as much by his attempt at modern colloquy as I was at his interest in my perspective of my own life. I relayed all of the horizon-broadening tasks I was doing for the Hilton Hotel's advance man, plus a boulderized version of my Colombo visits. His response, thinking about it now, may have been the most instrumental reply of those formative years. To what end? After which, he stood and entered his house to go to bed. To what end, indeed? I'd seen the Hilton Hotel's marketing literature. As impressive as the concierges looked, their jobs and their lives would still be inexorably tied to Trinco's provincialism. If I may borrow a phrase by the irritating members of Westbrook's N.A. community, I'd seen the light. As for the work itself, it was Father Christopher who instilled the strong Jesuit values necessary to arrive at my present station. Sure, there were others jockeying for position within the growing black markets and grey markets circling the hotel developments. I was twice as industrious, twice as charming, and twice as willing to do what was needed. My reputation spread and brought continual work, or rather I should say constant work, paid out handsomely in U.S. dollars. And so it was that in my eighteenth year on this planet, after a year of self-cultivation and increasing net worth, I discovered the truth in what the Hilton Hotel's advance man had once slurred after his ninth finger of scotch. In times of national upheaval, a young man can go far. I realize I've been oversalting the meal, as it were, with all these rose-colored memories. If only McNary could see me now, waxing nostalgic about the motherland. In these final moments, my mind races toward the earliest moments, 
toward a psychological safety net, when in fact I must contend with my present situation head-on, as it were. Readers demand an official accounting of events. I hope you'll forgive these venial digressions. I know I must earn that forgiveness with candor and a laying out of the facts. Perhaps I should begin with the synapse-exploding, bowel-shaking artistic revelations I felt assembling that triumphant first issue. Crucial to these revelations were the dusty books Wilfred pulled out of a rat-shit freckled pile in the library, in addition to the handful of, ultimately fruitless, National Geographic back issues. The Trial by Franz Kafka a Norton critical edition of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from a Birmingham Jail, The Prison Diaries of Nelson Mandela, and, just for fun, a pin-up mag from the 1960s in what collectors would call poor condition. These texts changed my life. I read them and reread them, and then forgot who said what in which book and read them again. Kafka MLK Mandela the faces on my Mount Rushmore, and the names printed in invisible ink above the holding pen's masthead. I didn't read the trial in the traditional sense. I remember I found the narrator quite boring. No, I read it spiritually. Joseph is my penal spirit animal, my incarcerated brother from another warden. And yes, I'm sure everyone inside claims he gets Kafka, but not like I do. Even now, as I type these words from the dubiously fortified media center, I feel the check's deep-set stare traveling over the astral expanse and drilling through my frontal cortex into the recesses of my lizard brain. Fear, anger, hunger, lust, Franz. My copy of The Trial is a cheap paperback from 1974, the inside front cover graffitied by three rows of simple declaratives in lead and ink. Donald read this. Juice read this. Mackay read this. And so on, which perhaps augmented its talismanic quality. Despite these names, the book felt thrillingly sacred and thrillingly mine. I should note this informal ledger wasn't limited to old Franz. Every book was marked as such. And to answer the question on your tongue, yes, nine or ten names tracked very closely with my own path through the library holdings. My treasures had been their treasures. I came to think of these men as fellow travelers through the same autodidact wilds. But no, I do not care to identify them here. When I mentioned my phantom book club to Wilfred, he confirmed what you may already suspect. They were, to a man... All pedos. I see my pile of Aeron chairs has settled a bit. A moment ago, one dislodged and tumbled over, producing a rather effective jump scare. I know I shouldn't worry about the strength of the barricade. I've done all I can with what was at hand. I've wedged the fallen chair into a bald spot between a footlocker and the doorframe. Looking at it afresh... I must tell you it is incredible that this loose collection of furniture is all that stands between life and death. I bow my head to these inanimate allies and hope they will exhibit solidarity and resolve when the time comes. Returning to the books. Future historians and hardcore fans might be interested to learn of my own reading habit, wherein I pluck an eyebrow or two and drop it between pages, 
deep in the spine. I did this constantly. McNary found it unsettling and once asked, What about the next guy who read the book? In truth, I had these readers in mind all along. I hoped for some geneticists several generations from now paging through, discovering this skeleton key to my DNA, and reverse-engineering a second existence like in the Spielberg Entertainment. Which is what I told McNary. This eyelash habit was symptomatic of a fear of death. He shook his head and asked if I'd ever considered the page's likely contamination by the eyelashes, hair, and corporeal debris of a hundred others, producing a worrisome hybrid of aught-years felons who ultimately destroys his makers and wreaks havoc on my imagined future utopia. I had not considered this. One lesson I've taken from old Franz, based on my limited exposure to his work, stay away from the ladies. To be more precise, the ladies that come to you. A true gentleman does all the work, and even then he isn't likely to persevere, and that's all right. Wanting occupies the febrile mind. I learned too late with that Janice-faced Betsy Pankhurst. I remember our first meeting well. After a few flirtatiously terse letters introducing herself and the occasion for her writing, an assignment from the MFA course, Queer I, for the straight guy to board, new journalism, new perspectives, she drove up in her roommate's car on a cloudy Thursday in January. Though the holding pen was gaining popularity, my only visitor had been my appeals lawyer, a frighteningly obese man with the optimism of a climate scientist. Other prisons have modernized visitors' centers with half-partitions and, it's rumored, board games. But Westbrook is still resolutely traditional— and the E-Block Visitor's Center sports double-pane perspex with telephones mounted on the right side. An awkward setup for southpaws like myself. The guards cleaned the receivers with Windex wipes between guests. Even now, the smell of clean windows triggers a tumescent sense memory. When Betsy sat down, I took her in as quickly as possible with only a brief glimpse toward her breasts. I am a gentleman. I was aware of this and also aware Betsy did not yet know this. She might have been at that very moment expecting a most lecherous stare. I rose to the challenge, as they say, a gentleman above all. The table helpfully disguised the sudden rush of blood. She was smartly dressed in a glowing white wool sweater with a Weimar bob accentuating her ears. Those ears! They're constellations of red dots, swollen from removing the earrings at check-in. I was filled with the mad wish to run my fingers over their fleshy hillocks. I could have done it for hours. She wasn't petite, but appeared so with an affected, scoliotic posture I recognized as the Otto Dix look, promoted by child soldiers come models in the season's glossy magazines. I report this with authority. Inside, we obsessed over every donated purple fashion, the gentlewoman, and W, experts in the style of the day how to evince no makeup makeup, the secrets to landing that internship, whether the ass was in. We laughed at that one. I didn't register it at the time, but I would treasure her tight, pallid skin, an almost deathly look, and therefore a constant reminder of death itself. Paradoxically, a total turn-on. I remember we'd not even had the chance to say hello before a fight erupted in the booth next to ours, my right, Betsy's left. There was first a man and a woman, 
Then a second woman burst through the visitor's door and beelined for the first woman. The screws let it go on a bit, the sheer entertainment value was so high, and as the women scratched each other's faces I noticed my neighbor casually pawing at his crotch. Then Sanderson, an old front-of-house screw with truly impressive eczema blooming across the desert scrub of his face, he stepped in and evicted the sparring ladies. Typical. The visitation room was populated by the sorriest lot you've ever seen, scab-pickers and bus-station rejects all. If inside is the place where hope goes to die, the visitor's room is where hope goes to live in a persistent vegetative state. Betsy was unnerved. I tried to lighten the mood, asked if she'd read any good books lately. A cliché move, yes, but also funny in retrospect, considering how les belles lettres have become the centrifugal force in our romantic and adversarial pas de deux. She pulled out a worn paperback stamped with the name of a Brooklyn second-hand shop, and in a mousy voice said it was some recent sensation, the memoir of a soldier who underwent gender reassignment surgery during a tour in Afghanistan. Tanks for the memories. Its story is likely familiar to readers with more Catholic tastes. Betsy had even read a few sentences to me before I stopped her. The author was too self-pitying. Though Betsy revealed herself in time, a bilious memoirist of the lowest order, a grad school Judas for the ages, I warmed to her every remark. She told me about the holding pen's huge following in the Braille community, among sight-impaired and non-sight-impaired readers alike. Her voice grew stronger and more confident, I noticed as I tried not to look at her breasts. She retrieved a small pad of paper and casually asked if I had a pen she could borrow, as if I could just slide it through the perspex. I said I didn't have a pen, but they let us carry pocket knives. Did she want to borrow one of those? She apologized, and then apologized a second time. Of course, no, she wasn't thinking. How horrible. I found it somewhat comic. You have to keep a sense of humor in life. Otherwise, what's the point? I could see Betsy felt quite abashed. This created a silence so total, so public, I knew I would have to be the one to break it. She idly fingered a corner of notebook paper, creasing the edge into a triangle until I said I could ask one of the COs to take one out of my commissary account. She smiled and nodded as I motioned to the screw posted at the door and explained my request. After a long glance at Betsy, he said she'd have to keep it. I replied, fine, not a problem, make it so, all the while feeling the sting of the institutional markup. Suddenly I saw us as the vacationing couple. She demanding the upgrade to the seats with more legroom, or strolling through Soho, slowing her pace in front of Mark Jacobs. Ha! My laugh startled Betsy. For a second there was real confusion in her eyes. In that moment I wondered if my peak was Betsy's intention all along. A small gift from the man who has nothing. It strikes me now there may have been an additional aspect to Betsy's machinations a day one test of my malleability and credulousness. Bravo, Miss Pankhurst. Bravo. I passed with flying colors, which is to say, I failed myself. It's not enough to be under her thumb. One must volunteer to go under the wheel.
I'm reminded of something the Hilton Hotel's advance man once said. Sri Lankans were gluttons for punishment. How prophetic. We must have radiated our mutual attraction, for Acosta appeared over her shoulder and said she'd had a cancellation if we wanted to squeeze in a quick portrait. Ho ho! This is moving along quite well, I thought. Acosta and her great eagle's nest of hair escorted Betsy over to the annex of memories while I exited, signed in, signed out, shackled up, received a quick pat-down, and met them through a separate door. I'm not sure how long the portrait studio had been in operation, but it was always Acosta's show, as it were, her side project and reward for a solid twenty on the job. I understand it's a reliable source of revenue and increasingly common at East Coast Minsex. As soon as I entered the annex, really just a wide corridor for the prison's odds and ends, I was immediately met by the sight of an African lakeshore with all manner of fauna dotting the landscape. Ocelots, toucans, and an old silverback, defiant and sage. This lush vista was to be the fabric backdrop to our couple's portrait. If you'd told me at breakfast I would see a painting of a toucan that afternoon, I'd have replied, No way, Jose! Acosta positioned us over an X mark on the floor and ran a couple test flashes from her tripod-mounted camera. If Betsy noticed the tripod was bolted to the floor, she didn't let on. Betsy stood in front of me like we were old lovers. She even pushed her ass against my right thigh. My cheeks went a deep crimson visible in the photograph. You might even mistake it for sunburn from a day on safari were it not for my jumpsuit and Betsy's winter wear. She said she would make this her profile pic. I replied that I was flattered. This seemed to be the response she sought. We were shooed away for the next family in line, whose patriarch thinned his eyes at Betsy. When we retook our seats across the perspex, I recall now experiencing a fugitive sensation, one I'd long thought dead and gone. A glance at the wall-mounted clock told me we had sixteen minutes remaining. I became aware of the limits of small time, that old bugaboo. It's a real killer inside but still I welcomed it. Small time was a cousin to that other rarity, sudden happiness. Of course, realizing as much tends to result in its dissolution, you may as well try to grasp the morning fog. I must have grinned at the thought, which Betsy would later embellish to, if I can remember the passage correctly, the bone-chilling smile of the homicidal simpleton. Betsy asked about life inside, the usual tourist stuff. I replied with a few lines cribbed from Kafka and Apocalypse Now. She asked about the Baronets, which I admit caught me off guard. I hadn't expected such casual impertinence, and, in any event, it's all ancient history. You would be proud to know I held my own. There was no need to go into it then, just as there's no need to go into it now. That wasn't, and this isn't the appropriate venue. Besides, that's what Wikipedia is for. To respond to all of the hashtag Fritz Lives memorials flooding the Twitter streams, I will acknowledge, yes, Betsy did profess her affection for the work of Fritz Balls McGenehy from the legendary volume 1, issue 3, Badlands. If there were anyone whose prose reached water-cooler renown in our 12-issue run, it would be Fritz. 
I regret ever signing off on his scabrous Romanoclef of abuse and malfeasance at Exeter Prep, with its tabloid bait half-masked by thin pseudonyms, a tale primed for tickling the erogenous zones of the body politic, and even worse, Fritz went and killed himself like an utter moron. Page 6, Prison Radio, CSI Miami, the rush to production Dakimakura body pillow. These sealed his reputation across all four quadrants, as movie marketers say. Fritz's fame hit its apex as the holding pen, qua literary journal, hit its nadir. That novella is truly a terrible piece of hackwork I included only because last October was a slow month. Had I known Fritz's plan, I would have pulled Youngin and let the moron hang for no reason. Though I suppose if his plan had been disrupted, he might never have punched his clock, as they say, continuing to live and toil in artistic obscurity, like all the true artists, honing his craft and eventually producing something worthy of the holding pen we know and love, not the holding pen he took a giant shit on with his awful novella. Reader you know all this. What you may not know is that Fritz tried to kill himself several times before, always during lulls in the news cycle, before the AP wire closed for the day. Eighty-three percent of Westbrook suicides occur on Sundays. Lest you think Fritz a depressive case, a romantic case, exactly what he would want you to think you should know. I hate to gossip, but it must be said. He just couldn't master the hangman's noose. He kept falling to his cell floor in a blooper reel of self-abnegation. And to put to rest the rumors once and for all, no, the coroner did not find a short story folded into Fritz's rectum. That's hearsay, though in keeping with the depths to which the conniving bastard would sink. And so readers must disregard any new fiction bearing his name. To his credit, the hangman's noose is a wily knot which demands practice. Wilfred once told me it is not uncommon for a spell of failed attempts to break out every decade or so, as the inmate turnover takes with it this particular institutional knowledge. Every generation has to make its own mistakes. None of us are exempt, except maybe Wilfred, who replied, yes, he does know how to make a hangman's noose. No, he's not going to tell you. Happily, the holding pen remains a respected journal despite the blemish of the McGenaghy affair. In the past two months alone, I've been called to blurb new releases from venerable trade houses and university presses alike. Boys will be boys, the arboreal penetration of negative space, a devastating monograph. River of Dawn, a devastating first novel by one of the premier voices of the French-Korean experience, and The Mathematician's Daughter's Diary a devastating inquiry into the secrets buried between fathers and daughters and the ineffable movements of the human heart. I never finished that last one. I'd lost the thread there for a moment. My apologies. You know your mind takes the most circuitous paths inside. Someone should conduct MRIs on convicts to see if we're wired differently. Memories. That's where it really begins. Every new fish and old-timer will tell you the same. You have your frame-worthy classics, maybe two or three dozen, the old reliables brightening your internal wattage. After a few months, inside, something in the archive breaks. It happens to all but the dimmest inmates. Your endless inventory begins retrieving half-images, unbidden ghost traces of the nothing days of youth. 
An insomniac night debating whether the refrigerator from the Hell's Kitchen apartment opened from the left or the right. You're certain the one in the De Silva's kitchen opened from the left. Your hand crossed your body to grip the long, shallow arc of the handle, a gesture you repeated a million times. This you knew with certainty. But the Hell's Kitchen apartment? Maddening. And the rub was you couldn't share this with anyone. Nobody wanted to hear it. It's worse than listening to someone recount last night's dream. The very act of writing this down brings new memories forward. Or perhaps I should say new memories of the vexing struggle to piece together old memories. Around month ten I noticed an encroaching technicolor filter, the hues richer, the soundtrack cleaner. I suspected my imagination and my sense of self-preservation were working hand in hand. I'd attempt to recall the moment in Montessori when Ms. Gunisikara asked each of us to recite our home address. It must have been an exercise in self-reliance. We were just out of the crib and already they're terrorizing us. Ms. Gunisikara comes to me and I freeze. I don't know the house number or the street. Even worse, I don't understand these demarcations or what they signify. We never received any mail, and West Trinco didn't get street signs until the construction boom. I knew every second of my panic would only provoke suspicion from the teacher and students. Was it the same number as the previous student, plus one? I could manage that. Perhaps it's my birth date. That would be convenient. I decide to wing it, declaring four, six, eight, eight, one, three, seven, six, five, two, four, until Miss Gunasikara's gentle smile twists in one corner and she asks me to stop and to be sure to ask Father Christopher that evening. It's a well-trod story, one which never failed to charm the biddies at the Bernays, though now I wonder, did I really wear faded blue overalls? Was this invention? Wasn't Miss Gunasikara older? My recollection was interrupted by the higher mind, which, sensing the attempt to see it whole, assembled a self-defeating feint. At night I would spend hours debating these changes, measuring the revisionist damage, wrestling with the greased pig of memory. The unfortunate truth is this detective work fostered a recursive paranoia wherein the objects in question changed under such questioning. I knew better than to keep working at it. There was a real danger of losing my mental bearings. The Ouroboros of suspicion, once established, is enough to rend it all. I acknowledge this is how lesser men go insane. On the subject of insane gestures, I might as well explain the facial scars. A few of you have noticed my fair appearance in newspaper photos and court renderings. In fact, I'd go so far as to say my skin was quite beautiful, moisturized and exfoliated thanks to a slew of Kiehl's products. There was an unspoken rule at the Bernays regarding frequent haircuts and daily applications of avocado-based emollients to face and hands. True, we doormen wore white gloves on the job, save for summer Fridays. I interpreted my employer's desire for clean cuticles and unchapped knuckles as illustrative of a hospitality regimen ever more professional, ever more than merely skin-deep, as it were. Getting back to the scars... I'd read a BuzzFeed explainer on acclimating to prison life. Seventeen ways to protect your rep, or some such. I can't find a link. They must have updated the site's archive infrastructure. The article said cicatricial ornamentation acted as a kind of clubhouse password. The worse, the better. So my first day I used the two hours before PM meal to sharpen the end of my toothbrush across the cement wall. 
The low-grade plastic chipped off in powdery flakes and formed a small mound at my feet. I worried about breathing it in. Surely the dust was toxic. They're always trying to kill you in the most banal ways. We kill each other with violence, I remember thinking. They kill us with banality. Anyway, I used the toothbrush to carve an avoid loop over my cheeks and forehead in an approximation of the rushed gesture of a back-alley assailant. A few weeks later, Lopez confirmed what I'd already began to suspect. Most new fish enter the cafeteria with mosaics of cuts and welts. They'd all read the blog post or at least heard its lessons. It was quite clever, I can see now. A brilliant piece of perennial clickbait and self-fulfilling prophecy. Ednote, Betsy found the scars super hot, I remember, despite my portrait in her libelous tell-all as spindly and lumpen. No, everyone ignored the scars. They had their own. It didn't matter. McNary said it was far weirder that I was Indian, dots not feathers, or at least that's what everyone thought at first, in for killing my manager at the House of Tanduri. You don't get a lot of subcontinentals in the prison system. Nobody knows Sri Lanka except as a trivial pursuit clue about tsunamis. I'd wager there are barely a dozen incarcerated Sinhalese across the entire country charged with brief sentences for white-collar pettiness. Ethnically and historically, I was quite unique. Am quite unique. A gentleman burger among the proles. The Aryans didn't know what I was, but they were pretty sure they hated it. The blacks performed double-takes and made derisive popping sounds out of the sides of their mouths, which, to be fair, was their reply to everything. The Muslim brothers were a bit more knowledgeable, but I ignored them and they ignored me. In truth, this wasn't altogether different from my first year in my adopted country, meeting out my savings, wandering Manhattan neighborhoods, absorbing, absorbing. I know how to adapt. It's a national trait. Sri Lankans have been ruled by the British, the Portuguese, the Dutch, maybe even the Swiss at some point. I tend to believe the Brits stole our well-practiced habit of keeping calm and carrying on. Many of you have asked about my lost year, post-Trinco and pre-Bernays, and I tell you now, nothing of consequence occurred in that time. How did I fill the days? I struggle to recall. There were the weekly jaunts from the north end of the island to its southern tip, ambling down Broadway to the Irish bars dotting the seaport, each one competing for the distinction of the oldest continually operating establishment. Are there trade secrets to pouring a Guinness known only to seventh-generation barkeeps? Wasn't the entire point of America that it had no past? Its people certainly practiced expert denial of their own bifurcated sesquicentenary eruption, which Rajat's cousins brought up twice, possibly three times, during that interminable evening in Sunset Park. In a total failure of a visit, Rajat snagged an emergency fare on a Qatari airline with the ostensible mission of visiting his expatriated relatives and an actual mission of seducing white women. Or, to be more precise, a white woman, a notch on the bedpost that I would be hypocritical to begrudge the man. If you'll allow the brief indulgence, his first night stateside found us in some uncle's vinyl-clad single-family unit in the middle of nowhere, with a dozen Sri Lankans decrying reconstruction efforts back home. The question on everyone's lips that evening, expressed with varying attempts at the mid-Atlantic accent, 
Would Chinese investment doom this once-in-a-generation opportunity for healing and for authentic national pride? I fumed silently from my position on the cat-scratched naga-hide sofa, unfrozen fish cutlet in hand. Who were they to turn down money for the fatherland, no matter how many strings came attached? Who were they to be so derailed by the UN Human Rights Inquiry? From where I saw it then, from where I see it now, this was yet another turn of the wheel, yet another cycle of boom and bust. What was our country if not a succession of disasters? Rajit, seated cross-legged on the floor like a doting pubescent, mumbled assent to his family's casual madness while comparing local nightclubs' Yelp reviews and forwarding me his faves for the night. It occurred to me then that Sri Lanka is the youngest ancient country on earth, wholly stunted, never more than a couple dozen years from its next destructive reset. The Indians, now they have continuity, however burdensome. They have the Buddha. We have... What? The sapling imported from the Bodhi tree. Huzzah! It's comical how my countrymen insist on long-term thinking in defiance of the face-slapping truth. Catastrophe will bring you low soon enough, so live every day like it's your last. Now, that's easy for me to write on this, my actual last day. But I would argue I've always lived this way. I've always woken up this way. I challenge the record to find otherwise. Speaking of lasts... That would be the last time I saw Rajit. I haven't thought about him much, and I hope he found the nightclub and the white woman he sought. I spun through the subway turnstile as an R train approached. He had to refill his metro card. You know how it is. Where was I? Ah, yes, those first weeks inside. I was relieved when I earned a nickname. It seems in retrospect a real turning point, an end to the beginning or the beginning of the end. I give thanks to the Latin kings for my Westbrook handle. Juan Pablo made a few inquiries, heard about the Bernays blue hairs, and found a parallel in Jessica Tandy and her trusty driver in that 180s film. Then he simply rounded up from brown to black. So MF I became, and am, though of course I still publish under my Christian name. I will credit my minority status to a relative comfort inside, if not at present, obviously, than before. It was quite easy to move among the different groups at Westbrook, an outsider to all. The Osito, O Bastard Face, and the Muhammads knew I was beholden to the written word and the written word alone. I must also credit a lifelong talent for disarming strangers, well honed from those years in hospitality. Despite my one felonious transgression, I remain, as McNary has said, the very picture of innocuousness. While I've often felt my literary success, the work of the fates operating my mouth and limbs like a marionette, my boyish appearance has afforded journalistic access closed off to most others. I'd like to share one of my tricks for commissioning material for the first three issues. Volume 1, Issue 1, A New Frontier. Volume 1, Issue 2, Geographies, and Volume 1, Issue 3, Badlands. Naturally, this proved challenging. Convicts aren't inclined to devote free time to composing stories for an upstart literary project whose only recompense is three contributors' copies. 
Reaction spanned from fuck you say to me to the more polite what the fuck you just say to me. I learned to counter with a story from my time at the Bernays. I'd take my union break at one of the concrete benches lining Central Park West. It may have been Miss Rothschild's, her family plaques dotted CPW like wind-tossed pollen. I found myself sharing the bench with an aggrieved parent and her mewling charge, a boy of five or six. I thought, kid, we're all suffering. But he found it necessary to express this with full force sobbing, a real capacious howl, his whole body slack. His mother wasn't hitting him or yelling, nothing like that. She was rooting through her leather tote for a Tupperware of Cheerios. No, these were the cries of a boy glimpsing for the first time how truly unfair life can be, and worse yet, he had so many years of unfairness ahead. The race had just started for him. The rest of us can take comfort in numbness from overexposure, and he must have realized it was all rigged from the beginning. After five minutes of this, I entered a new headspace, somehow freer. The boy's concatenated sobbing became simple noise. I slid a hand over to his and pinched the fold of skin between the boy's thumb and index finger. He was really wailing now. The sound took on its fullest expression. It was primal, earthy, made to fill canyons. It was, I realize now, quite special to hear, and the expressions on the faces of passers-by, expressions of, I can't believe it got worse, these were wonderful to see. His mother, oblivious, continued her search for Cheerios. I'd tell the story, and even the most grizzled hard case would shake his head. Kids, man, what are you going to do? This tactic was so successful, as long-time readers have noticed, we swiftly outgrew our initial page count. Two features became three, three became four, four became whole new sections, fiction, essays, lyric memoir, crowding out those front-of-book diversions I'd included as bait. I admit... I'd been surprised by this respect for our readers' tastes. I had underestimated and I had misjudged, assuming these first holding-pen readers preferred the lascivious tableau of page four's Connect the Dots to the dirty realist short fiction. Yes, I know, I said as much in the editor's letter for volume one, issue five, Dreams, and this is no time for repeating oneself. Many of you know the early days of the holding-pen and right asking of my own early days inside. They weren't altogether terrible. I'd made the mistake of having cash in my wallet at processing. It never made it to my commissary account. I wish I'd brought a fleece for the winter nights. I wish someone had told me that was even allowed, perhaps an update for that terrible BuzzFeed article. But I adjusted. I adjusted and I acclimated. The volume inside Westbrook was new to me, or rather the sounds, not the volume. There were fewer of them. Six months passed before I realized I missed low-flying planes. As for the volume, there was never true quiet. The pre-war electrical system popped and buzzed without pattern or reason, but even the louder noises were manageable. A cry, a shout, barbells dropped. I would lie awake with ears tuned to the nocturnal soundtrack of E-Block, its moans and the onerous gasps rippling the surface. Below, in the deeper water, 
the susurration of two hundred pairs of lungs, and fifty-five inches away from me, O Bastard Face's reliable percussive snoring. More than once I mistook my neighbor's breathing for someone in bed with me. On those nights I never dared to turn over and dispel the illusion, though it is true I've had fewer than four nights with a sleeping companion. Colombo pros leave soon after end of session. It goes without saying I entered Westbrook unaffiliated and extremely vulnerable, but other new fish had it worse. One evening in the PM meal slop line, O Bastard Face walked up to a jaundiced fellow I'd nicknamed Summerteeth, probably a drugs charge in the hinterlands of Meth County. The poor guy had just enough time to put his game face on when O Bastard Face swept the man's legs out from under him and directed his head onto the metal railing, sending tray, plate, water cup, and stroganoff up to the heavens. I quickly darted my eyes to a fixed point on the ceiling and whistled some show tune. This routine was not personal, mind you, First-timers all hear the same thing. Pick a fight with the biggest guy, it shows hardness and earns respect. O Bastard Face was constantly under attack. Even a brain-damaged glance around the mess hall would identify the Irishman as the most outsized of the bunch, an ideal target for establishing credibility. It went on that way for months, McNary said. In the yard, at the library, it didn't matter. Young pups jumped him after a mumbled chest-flexing taunt. O bastard face sighing, responding in kind, the whole thing over with a swap or two. As far as we could tell, he didn't mind the arrangement. It kept him loose, mixed up the repertoire. But it was hell on the screws. They couldn't bear the tension, their hands at the ready, eyes on the new fish, eyes on O bastard face, eyes on the new fish, on and on. Eventually Costas told O Bastard Face it would make everyone's life easier if he clocked the new fish at the outset. A welcome from the local panjandrum, as it were. The screws would look the other way. Incidentally, this new arrangement was how I first met the man. He turned from his first comer and relieved me with a light series of left hooks my stroganoff also sent flying. Later I watched this scene play out for others, my role recast as the disinterested observer. Once you're in long enough, it's all paint by numbers. Poor Summer Teeth. A handful of you have already guessed he was indeed the same man at the center of Dispatched from Volume 1, Issue 3, Badlands. As with any gut-punching reportage, the genesis of the piece is itself an interesting story. Near the end of Sunday PM wreck, as the late September sky filled with clusters of migrating geese, we fell into single file for the count. White Mike and Steve lined up behind me like whistling shoplifters. The Aryans were never good at subtlety. White Mike leaned in and whispered, Hey, MF, I'm your deep throat. I registered momentary confusion as well as momentary irritation. His goatee was scratching my neck. And began to outline my arrangement with my beloved McNary, which I understood to be, if not public knowledge, then at least semi-public knowledge. We put up a bedsheet. What else could we be doing back there? We approached the faded blue metal doors, the CO's listless monotone growing louder. Forty-seven, forty-eight, forty-nine. We'd be split off into different directions in a minute or so. White Mike clarified, No, Nixon's deep throat, to which I replied, You mean Mark Felt? He said, Who the fuck is... Never mind. Showers tomorrow, second shift. Bring a notebook. Had this exchange occurred before the holding pen... I would have considered the request a fool's errand, 
a transparent scheme to lure me into who knows what. I can admit now that by Volume 1, Issue 3, Badlands, I'd come to recognize the higher calling of the Fourth Estate, heard it in my ear and felt it at my back. You can be sure this newfound confidence of the true believer was a novelty to an agnostic such as myself. The question was not whether I was going to follow up on White Mike's tip, how could I refuse, but regarded the nature and content of the scoop. Without casting aspersions on the man, White Mike was never at the heart of political intrigue or sexual intrigue or even bureaucratic intrigue. The mashed potatoes were starchier than usual. Perhaps White Mike stumbled upon a campaign to slowly poison us? No. He'd more likely hoard a smoking gun than fire it. Suffice to say, my expectations were low. Though I'm heartened by the essay's inclusion on so many J-school syllabi, I should articulate here, in my final moments, the writer's want to embellish. Dispatched spends a good nine hundred words on the attack itself, whereas the whole thing was over in a matter of seconds. I indulge myself a roomy word count as un doigt de seigneur. Prison hits are executed with a necessary economy of motion, not unlike a fast-food crew at rush hour. I'd arrived early and found a spot in the rear of the horseshoe-shaped room. It was an ideal vantage to record the most intimate details, which I assure you were all faithfully transcribed. Ignore the protestations by Summersheath's next of kin to Nancy Grace. I may come clean, as it were, about one moment not transcribed nor reported, a moment of both clarity and unsettling guilt. As Summerteeth first entered the shower, lured by what I would guess were the flimsiest of promises, he saw me and my notebook. He arched an eyebrow. He actually arched one of his eyebrows. I remember there was a kind of situational irony of such an intelligent expression on so unintelligent a person walking into such mortal danger. Also, I was wearing my prison greys. He may have registered the dissonance of the clothed in a nudity standard environment. On instinct, I retreated three steps until my own back was against the mildewed wall. At that moment, Summerteeth had the mark of death upon him, and sure enough, White Mike and Steve entered from behind. I recall the sound of his heel catching on the linoleum, the sound of gravity winning over muscle control. It was the sound of the end for Summerteeth. White Mike slipped four or five of those quarter-inch-thick rubber bands around the man's head and over his mouth, filling the air with chalky dust and summer teeth's low groans. The lights cut out for a few seconds. I assumed this was planned. Then I saw White Mike and Steve pause while Summerteeth flopped about on the grouty tile. This wasn't all that uncommon. The electric was notoriously spotty. The warden said no amount of money could fix the ancient wiring. Just last summer, a fluke in D-block circuits made everything a good 5% brighter. It lasted maybe three weeks, and old Ellis mistook this literal enlightenment for a figurative one. In no time, he transformed into a proselytizing vulture, swooping down on the carry in a philosophical debate. That's interesting what you're saying about Marx, but have you ever considered the teachings of our Lord and Savior? His lunchtime sermons drove us nuts until we learned to simply ignore him. When the lights returned to the showers, White Mike and Steve resumed like two laborers performing their scut work with neither malice nor pleasure. After summer teeth expired, they nodded to each other and turned to me. I knew enough to pretend my pen could still write in the waterlogged notebook. The next day, White Mike and Steve interrupted my dinner. How'd it look? Did it look good? We looked hard, didn't we? I nodded, yes, yes, the hardest. 
To answer a question I've received dozens of times, I felt not the slightest hesitation about covering Summerteeth's demise, regardless of the outrage expressed by my left-leaning pensioners. Did I feel complicit in boosting White Mike's reputation? On the one hand, he didn't need it. Word spread quickly. On the other, my coverage was at that time an untapped resource, and White Mike its first speculator. To play out the metaphor, I suppose that would make the warden a kneecapped SEC. In the weeks following the publication of Dispatched, my concern grew in tandem with White Mike's effusiveness and the adulatory letters from that fateful grad student, more on him later, time willing, and I confess at the risk of even greater public ignominy a brief desire to rescind the article. What kind of precedent would I be setting? The submission process provoked enough anxiety. I can see with the clarity of the newly sober that Volume 1, Issue 3, Badlands, is the fulcrum around which everything turned. Oh, to have remained undiscovered. I'd no idea how badly this would all turn out. I only knew, I remember, the deep intestinal shame, the cure for which was enforced isolation. Good news, then. I was in the right place for enforced isolation. It was an easy ask of McNary. He intuited these kinds of things. I remember the briefest mention about my rising and corrosive influence before he replied, A fuck and a tussle, then the hole? We waited until AM lineup. He gave me a shove. I responded in kind. We exchanged blows. The screws broke it up. If you've never had the pleasure of staging a fight with a loved one, I highly recommend it. I remember it as if it were yesterday. Our mutual goal of really selling it to onlookers restrained by mutual affection, creating a brainstem confusion over hurting the one you love. Around the fourth knock to the ribs, I felt something much deeper. McNary's unspoken concession to switch off higher-level thinking and really lay in, my endorphins flooding the senses. For two seconds, this frisson of discovery brought genuine happiness. The Japanese call this wabi-sabi, though I may be mistaken. It's the nature of these fights that the defendant receives the punishment, something to do with Screw's reaction times. As Costas walked me to solitary, it was all I could do to keep from whistling. I'd done one day and two day stints before, nothing too damaging. You want to avoid anything longer than that. You see it in the stoop-shouldered gait of the men who pull a ten, not even getting into the effects of a thirty-plus. They stand corroded and bent like hurricane-battered streetlights. I'd wagered three, maybe four days, just enough time to delay the production workflow of Volume 1, Issue 4, Horizons. Yes, the one with the spot-gloss cover. My hope, I remember now, was to convey to Warden Gertjens my unreliability, a mercurial nature ill-suited for the steady hands of a holding-pen stewardship. Wilfred made it to tenth grade. Maybe he could inherit the job. Perhaps I should address that fateful grad student, since so many of you are asking for my side of the story. Ben Krauss, short for Benjamin, and pronounced, I'm told, like the twentieth-century German philosopher. Ben Krauss, a shaggy-haired, all-but-dissertation academic who discovered Volume 1, Issue 3, Badlands, in Westbrook's visitor's lounge during a research trip for a paper. Something, something, late capitalism, something, something, institutional gesture. He struck up a correspondence. I confess we found little in common. 
For two months I received weekly letters from the earnest young man. He preferred not to meet in person. His manic scribblings dense with rhetorical cul-de-sacs and page-long sentences. The truth is, even a boring letter will merit a response from an incarcerated recipient. I thought nothing of his breathless news that his 4,000-word think piece was to be published by hashtag, 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 an upstart literary magazine from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Of course, I now know the publication quite well. They graciously send me the quarterly and its various sister projects. I gather it's an intimate operation, a clubhouse of logoreic Harvard grads and rotating piles of interns. Kudos to them and their dedication to the written word. In these trying times, I can think of no goal higher than the self-imposed edicts by these fun-sized sontags to reshape the world view of each and every Brooklyn millennial. Krauss's article, I'm told I remember, is in keeping with their general project. He valorized the holding pen as a landmark in post-penal lit, that lamentable phrase. McGinnehy and Lopez were deemed new voices you can't ignore, which some commenters interpreted as a subtle dig at the common diagnosis of schizophrenia among prison populations, but Krauss's naivete trumps wit. His piece sported an unctuous dollop of white guilt, naturally, but in all fairness less than you'd think, and they even reprinted Dispatched and my first three Reflections columns through a syndication arrangement rubber-stamped by the warden. If my Midwest and West Coast readers are unfamiliar with hashtag, 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 I give it my strongest endorsement. Start with the most recent summer issues, Salman on the Mount, and The Pornography of Pornography. Great stuff. I see activities picked up on hashtag Westbrook Riot. I apologize to my many fans that I cannot address all of your queries. Would that I had the time. A cruel reversal, I think, of the usual state of affairs inside. The garret of fate tightening around my neck with every burst of clatter and darting shadow down the hall. Are they close? There's a trace of sulfur in the air. I dare not investigate. A great editor's curiosity is tempered by an equal measure of forbearance. I will continue, despite the distractions and the acid reflux, to provide an official accounting of the events as they happened. To respond to 99ponda underscore Baba's upvoted question in the Reddit AMA, I'll sidestep the more obvious differences and invoke the ritual of folding one's laundry. Quite often, I'd return home from the Bernays, utterly spent and further dejected by the midtown street's sea of inhumanity, too tired to haul a weathered sack of soiled garments to the laundromat. When it became utterly necessary, a fortnight and a day to exhaust my stock of Uniqlo briefs, I would run this most onerous errand, staring at the tumbling wet bricolage in the washer, and, if I was lucky, entering something akin to a trance state. I also entered something akin to a trance state during the hours of inactivity at the Bernays, and in truth for the entirety of July and August when its residents decamped for Martha's Vineyard and the Hamptons. Perhaps my fondest memory of the laundry ritual, pouring the downy-scented hall onto my twin bed and separating the clothes into folded columns, an act, if I may be so grand, of rediscovering the molted shells of my former self. The I who purchased a baker's dozen of white tube socks from a fast-talking West African on Canal Street, the I who walked the sartorial tightrope of the mock turtleneck, and the I who endorsed the Hoboken outpost of the Hard Rock Cafe, also Canal Street, 
My Bernays livery, on the other hand, was always martinized and heavily starched by a specialist in Turtle Bay, a paunchy Chinese man with yellowed fingers and a silent daughter managing the register. I mention this only to emphasize the alien nature of my off-duty attire. Alien to myself, that is, the very person to whom it should be most familiar. When I unloaded the pile of clean and folded clothing onto my twin bed, a sensation came over me, I remember, of communing with someone who was not quite me and at the same time more me than anyone else. Inside, of course, it's all yellow jumpsuits and grey jumpsuits. Before you let loose cries of hypocrisy, yes, it's true I worked laundry detail before that fateful transfer to my present epic-defining post. But if I'm being honest, and I hope that if we can be anything with each other or to other, it's honest— we all know one's recreational pleasure becomes tainted when transmuted into paid labor, exsanguinated are the motivations behind simple play. This is not to say laundry detail was a doleful enterprise. Sure, the summer months brought a noticeable spike in the human odors carried by the cotton-poly blends, but every now and then I would catch McNary's unmistakable costume amid a new pile, and those shifts made it all worth it. McNary, as you've no doubt grasped, was a deep pragmatist with an almost monastic approach to material goods. His one concession to flair, then, was what Wilfred would call a doozy, a single jumpsuit patchworked together from dozens of threadbare or otherwise ruined outfits he'd hoarded from his own time in laundry, which I remember he told me was about fourteen or fifteen months before my arrival to Westbrook. The final product was a magnificent quilt of lemon-colored madras. I had initially wondered why no one slashed it out of envy, or boredom, a more common motivation. The figurative abrasiveness of the place tended to become literal. For some reason, McNary and his costume were exempt. Now that I think about it, as WXHY Action News pans over the joyful chaos in B-Block, despite one inmate's attempt to peg the strafing helicopter with frisbeed cafeteria trays, I don't think it's a stretch to say McNary's jumpsuit possessed a talismanic quality inextricably bound to its wearer, regarding which I can only speculate from within my decidedly biased viewpoint. At the very least, let us agree McNary's just that kind of guy. If asked, he'd reply in his characteristically downplayed manner, the jumpsuit is a nod to the back-pocket handkerchiefs of his dive-bar youth. Perhaps it was the craftsmanship. As I said, even the roomy-eyed Aryans on the base of the white trash totem pole could appreciate the reinforced placket and back darts indicative of a high-quality garment. Perhaps it was the spirit of E Pluribus Unum the brothers and the Latin kings so easily go in for, or perhaps the respect accorded McNary's jumpsuit was an externalized form of the respect accorded McNary himself. He premiered the piece not long after my own editorial project, and while all of Westbrook soon clamored for inclusion in the pages of The Holding Pen, hitching their wagon to a rising star, as they say, McNary stood conspicuously apart, adamant his own name and person never be mentioned. And though it causes me great pain to break such a covenant now, I hope McNary, wherever he is, be safe, forgives my transgression and understands the extenuating circumstances under which I've done so and within which I type these, my final words. Thinking about him brings an ache to the solar plexus not unlike the feeling when the descending airplane first hits runway.
While everyone pleaded and cajoled for a piece of the literary spotlight, McNary's contrarianism, and I feel as though I can speak for all of E. Block on this point, demonstrated rare and personal honor. It was deeply American in that ineluctable way. I see that even mentioning my beloved provokes an outpouring of sympathy on Facebook and Twitter. I also see the usual FAQs, which I may as well answer on the record before my time is up. One of the most common questions, besides the fan favorite regarding the incarcerated's concupiscence and its unsanctioned satisfaction, with particular interest in the hows and whys of said release, one of the most common questions is, did I think the holding pen would become so influential and culture-warping? In truth, I remember, no, who could have? The sculptor chisels his marble. It may be another life study. It may be the very fundament of history. He does not know. He cannot know. The muse's banshee scream deafens him to all else. Yes, there were clues, little breadcrumbs through the forest of artifice to the castle of immortality. The joint report from McKinsey Ogilvy citing the holding pen as a key trend driver in the Hong Kong luxury market. Wait, no, that was later. Volume 1, Issue 7, The Patriarchy. Before McKinsey Ogilvy, there was the 47-minute disquisition on the holding pen by Senator Tim Wagner, Republican, Maine, couched within a nine-hour filibuster excoriating federal entitlements. At one point I skimmed the transcript, but in truth I retained very little of the speech. Suffice to say, Senator Wagner held up the holding pen as Exhibit A for the Democrats' bloated welfare state, a not entirely unpersuasive bit of rhetoric we later found germinated from his intern's poli-sci thesis. How this fresh-faced BYU alumnus stumbled upon Volume 1, Issue 6, Flora and Fauna, I have no idea. I do know Maddo and Marr picked up the baton, almost simultaneously, if I recall correctly, and rallied around our humble institution. Maddo, I've been a reader since the beginning. Very gutsy stuff. Marr, someone should tell the good senator it's better to pick straw men who don't shiv you in the shower. While the media interest blossomed and died within 48 hours, something about North Korea, something about kidnapped Miss South Korea, our site traffic steadied at a respectable new plateau. We'd broken through. When John Doe of Buttfuck, Kansas, thought of post-penal literary magazines, he thought of us. Apologies for my brief absence. Wouldn't you know it, just when I was getting to the heart of the matter, to the white-hot center of this official accounting of events as they happened, Devin the pedo began banging on the hallway window of the media center. He's a boiled potato of a man, glistening with sweat and the wild-eyed exuberance of an adrenaline spike in full flush. He had stripped down to his underwear, or had been stripped down to his underwear, with blood caked over his mouth and chin. My first impression upon seeing him was of a large newborn, Devin, my good man, how are you? I asked, between the bass thumps of his fists on the glass and his legato chants of, Let me in, let me in, let me in, let me in. I told him, You look great. He did, despite all. But I'm afraid there's no room at the inn. Scoot. I pointed to the keyboard, coupled with what I hoped was a light-hearted bounce of the shoulders as if to say, It's a living. He continued his arrhythmic pounding. 
and I was reminded of why I never liked the man, besides the pedophilia, or in addition to the pedophilia, which, if I'm being honest, isn't really a problem here. There wasn't any temptation or anything. If pressed, I would say the man was simply a shithead. I flapped my hand to shoo him away. Devon glanced backward, possibly in response to something I didn't catch or couldn't hear, mumbled a generic invective, then signaled his leave with a phlegmatic gob loosed right into my line of sight. A class act, that Devon. To return, the Wagner filibuster was merely the mainstreaming of our popularity. Cool hunters and tobacco marketers both know if you're going to get big. First, you have to get the influencers. Your Lego architects, your South by Southwest experiential leads, your prop stylists for Japanese workwear zines. I direct new readers to We Have All Killed the Widows, a rather thorough listserv of holding pen scholarship. The moderators claim, with some degree of confidence, two distinct and near simultaneous first sightings of the holding pen in the cultural underground. Last December, a restaurant named Napkins opened in the Mission District of San Francisco, the newest addition to celebrity chef Frankie de Credenza's growing empire. De Credenza has the reputation for being as lax with his restaurant's decor as he is meticulous with his crudo. It would not surprise any of his many loyal fans to learn his first Michelin star, Frank Stuff in London's Gravesend, was awarded only after fierce internal debate whether he even qualified. His plywood tables have been pulled from the refuse pile at a nearby wharf and gave the judges several splinters in their hindquarters. As for napkins, the chef was dating a homeless teenager he'd found shooting up in the alley behind the restaurant. De Credenza asked the young man to furnish the place for $800. Destiny pushed the doped-up kid into a nearby dumpster, and two weeks later, napkins opened to rapturous reviews about its duck à l'orange and its curiously moving placemats. That kid's name? You guessed it already. Grammy nominee and MTV Music Video Award winner DJ g, -G, -G ghost On the night of Napkin's soft opening, 3,000 miles away at Brown University, a young graduate student was opening her mail. Anne Elise Mulholland had pitched almost a dozen dissertation topics to her complete advisor, only to be rebuffed with the same excuse. The excuse heard by all the sprightly academics in the world historical moments before watershed scholarship. Her thesis idea had already been investigated. Investigated, colonized, civilized, and overpopulated. Imagine young Mulholland's frustration, this constant running into the brick wall, bloodying her intellectual nose, as it were. Even her advisor, an old guard Henry James scholar, yes, just Henry James, sympathetic to the woman's circumstances, vouchsafed a few alleyways of research. Might she wish to spend thirty months on the jingoistic effects of the Oxford comma in Scottish bedside novels of the 1880s? No, she might not. Of course, we remember the contents of that fateful mail drop. We've all seen the dramatic reenactment on Sixty Minutes. Mulholland's cousin, a scrappy young Aryan national out of B-Block had sent her a copy of Volume 1, Issue 3, Badlands, along with a letter Mulholland found, as usual, too prolix and racist to merit anything more than a cursory glance. But the holding pen. Here was something new, she thought, she said later to Bob Simon, something vital and unexplored. In the 60 Minutes segment, Mulholland began a slightly embarrassing reverie, 
invoking Cuban samizdat, the europhagic photography of Robert Maplethorpe, and, I kid you not, man's inhumanity to man. Let me be clear. I hold Mulholland and the good work she's done in the highest regard and intend merely a light ribbing. The rest of her narrative is well known and not worth rehashing here when time is so clearly running out. The novitiates and the curious should search the Smithsonian site for her first bit of correspondence with Warden Gertjens, a real beauty, with phrases like authenticity vogue and fresh claw marks across the commodity spectrum. And for anyone who doubts her bona fides, I direct you to the acknowledgments section of Betsy Pankhurst's Roarback of a Publication and its sarcastic hat tip to the young scholar, noting Mulholland's professional reticence in response to Betsy's queries. Here I must credit Warden Gertjens for his clear-sightedness. One evening he attended a Teal Foundation fundraiser for sending tweens to intensive eight-month coding camps in northern Utah and found himself seated next to Benedict and Poopy Atherton, the power couple of all Dutchess County power couples. The warden wasted no time. He's always been one to strike when the iron's hot. He pulled out a copy of The Holding Pen and said what he'd really like to do. What all the kids these days are asking for is to bring his august print publication into the 21st century. The Athertons, who after five decades of marriage resembled identical twins, asked in unison, Into the 21st century? What do you mean by that? The warden replied in hushed tones, The Internet. All he needed was a three million dollar endowment and the holding pen could be shared with the entire world. Teal kicked in an additional million when he heard Warden Gertjens intended to circumvent Albany for the funding, with the stipulation that English and Spanish copies of Atlas Shrugged be distributed to every inmate. And so we had our top-of-the-line, possibly overpriced content management system. I don't need to tell you how instrumental going online has been for the holding pen. While I still hold my first and deepest love for our print product, Volume 1, Issue 11, Shakuna Songu, has nine paper stocks. The site introduced us to 19 million unique visitors and counting. The warden told me we were starting to receive dozens of letters and hundreds of slush-pile submissions. I read a few of them, he said, all terrible. He graciously passed along the notes of adulation and encouragement. Beyond the metrics, I began to appreciate our greater social influence. Commenters linked to our mentions in contemporary rap songs where the holding pen had achieved meme status, be it ASAP Rocky, holder in the pen, she do that trill shit, off-white jumpsuit, she gonna unzip, Dram, I'm gonna post my love note in a holding pen, cause you're a cutie, take you to the mess hall for dinner, cause I'm a foodie, and Kanye West. Bring the club up to penal code. Grecian goddess wanna hold my pen and pen and ode. I bring her up, VIP, she want me unload, huh? And let's not forget the striking image by French artist J.R. of Lopez's mugshot blown up to several hundred feet and plastered like wallpaper to San Francisco's Transamerica Pyramid as part of the Levi's XJR X Blackstone Group collab. Sure, the publication process was laborious at first, Writing out the daily posts in longhand while seated in a windowless office at the end of Times Square, delivering the pages to Costas to give to Warden Gertjens as PA for transcription and uploading, the Oberlin interns added images, A-B tested headlines, moderated comments, that sort of thing. I'd brought them on after Volume 1, Issue 5, Dreams, 
Our scale had made it necessary to enlist a dozen undergraduates to copy, edit, and track order fulfillment. I believe Westbrook received a small stipend from the university in exchange for the privilege. I'm happy to report my column, Reflections, consistently ranks among the most read posts. As I think on it now, sitting in the Will and Edith Rosenberg Media Center for Journalistic Excellence in the Penal Arts, with the smoke filling the sky and the rhythmic klaxon blare down the hall, I admit to feeling a minor tremor in the otherwise unshakable confidence regarding my editorial stewardship. Perhaps it was Henry Kissinger who said, Given the circumstances, I did my best. Could I have done more? Yes. Could I have been truer to my internal compass? Debatable. I know the true measure of my personal agency, as minute as that of my fellow incarcerated men the world over, and yet my masters are not penitential, or not exclusively penitential. Indeed, the historical and social forces at my back are so strong, I swear they take corporeal form. A hand on my shoulder, a whisper in my ear, and, when I glance backward at the metaphorical beach of life, one pair of footprints where the historical and social forces piggybacked me through the hard times. Dear reader, I know what you're thinking. The GSSR has gotten to me. I've turned in the parlance of spycraft. I swear to you now I brook no other interpretation of my success, and, in the delicious phrasing of my younger fans, let me state clearly and definitively, I give zero fucks about the GSSR. Pop culture enthusiasts are no doubt familiar with their major domo, the charismatic Bronwyn Taylor, heir to a Toronto cardboard packaging fortune and two-time X Games medalist in motocross freestyle. With his shoulder-length copper locks, professionally maintained by Quebec's most expensive stylist, his lacrosse player's physique, a retrograde philosophy of polyamory articulated in an infamous series of Snapchats, and his freakish run at last year's World Series of Poker— Bronwyn Taylor has become a media darling for the TMZ and V-Man set. As I understand it, his celebrity status and regular appearances in Who Wore It Best has formed a protective extrajudicial membrane around his activities and, to an extent, the activities of the GSSR. If you'll recall the newsstand shootings in Hamburg, Lyon and Antwerp on July 2nd, assassinations in protest of the debossed cover of Volume 1, Issue 9, Heritage, Taylor's claim of responsibility for the killings was followed by their ceremonial naming of the fall guy, some wide-eyed reed dropout with a martyr complex, and, it goes without saying, the short straw. The poor bastard, I remember, was arraigned the very same day of Taylor's guest host spot on Live with Kelly and Ryan, a guest host spot which critics and fans agree was handled competently. In one clip, a blushing Selena Gomez complies with Taylor's request to touch his righteous abs. I disavow wholly and definitively the actions and opinions of the GSSR. Let them bomb our printer's factory. Let them poison the gazpacho at our benefactor's gala. I will not be cowed by Taylor or his kind. I see them now behind the line of news vans in their slate-gray Jill Sander jumpsuits, unfurling what looks to be a protest banner the length of a school bus, indecipherable in the Instagram posts. Ars longa, vita brevis, plus some additional Latin nonsense. At the risk of seeming uncouth, these arivists know nothing of art. 
The incarcerated man knows art, or at least is exposed to more art than the man outside. There are always theater troops and grizzled troubadours working the circuit, chasing the easy high of altruism. People who consider the gift of song the greatest gift of all. They've worn down the grooves of their Johnny Cash records. They've heard the stories of South African prisoners standing ovations for Godot. These actors long for such a performance. They crave it and they need it in a deep, almost embarrassing sense. They want one of the screws to open weeply at its apex, for the rest of us to whisper of it for years hence, to pass its wisdom to new fish in those somber tones familiar to anyone who suffered an uncle reminisce about Studio 54 in the old days before all the ODing. Not a week goes by without mandatory attendance at one of these execrable productions. These playwrights and musicians know their audience. They're stupid, but they're not ignorant. Every one of them knows we're the way-out-of-town preview. The material is often pre-workshop and only recently post-table read. To say nothing of the narrow breadth of its content, most often a chamber drama with a third-act revelation of long-buried incest, McNary noted last August's production of Beneath the Yellow Moon alluded to a wartime rendezvous of siblings that somehow occurred a month after the brother was killed in Afghanistan. The urban plays are worse. Tendentious affairs staged by a local group named the Spike League Joints and always a year behind in slang. After a fifth or sixth production, I detected an unintended feedback loop of mediocrity closed to the brain tingle of real art. This void at the center of every performance became clearer with every performance. In a way, I came to recognize art by its lacuna. Cineasts will recall a similar feeling among the French New Wave directors, whose films acted as an antidote to the studio direct they'd reviewed as critics. Am I saying that I'm the Godard of contemporary prison literature? I'm not not saying it. Sitting here and typing these words as the violence thrums down the hall with death's arctic exhalations on the back of my neck, I can no longer pretend false modesty. The true fans of the holding pen expect no less. It is no longer the time for being polite. Now is the time to start getting real. I fear I may have lost the thread of this official accounting of events as they happened, as it were, and for that I apologize. When Costas escorted me to solitary, when I took my seat on the cold cement that would serve us as chair and mattress, when Costas slid the mint-green door shut and my neighbor's whisper shouted, Who dat? Hoping for an acquaintance or someone with fresh gossip. I must admit to a swell of pride. Surely, I thought, I remember, the warden would get someone else to manage his pet project, someone who might better shoulder such responsibility. Wasn't there a rapist in A Block who'd earned two PhDs by correspondence? Or Yancey, the embezzler in C Block? His head is so far up the screw's ass as he knows what they ate for breakfast. The warden bounced me after an hour and a half. Incredible as it may sound, I now know with the benefit of hindsight, I hadn't truly absorbed prison life at that time. I do not consider myself naive and did not consider myself so. Rather, I prided myself, and pride myself, on going into every situation with eyes open. How to say it? I knew the power dynamics of Westbrook. They were in the very air we breathed, heavy and sour in the flats, dehumidified and glade fresh in Times Square. 
but I hadn't internalized the power dynamics until that moment. Perhaps it was easier to feed my denial on the morsels of institutional routine which is necessarily self-effacing. You can't take it personally. My mistake lay in misreading Westbrook's capricious meteorology. As Costas slid the mint-green door open and gave a you-again look, I had the sensation of standing before a tidal surge making landfall. We walked in silence to the E-block flats, Costas swinging his club in a short counterclockwise loop, an end-of-shift habit, reliable as a poker tell. It was on that walk I came to realize my professed approach to life, with eyes open, had in fact hit a second, deeper set of eyes. Eyes which had been closed until that day. The warden wasn't going to let me stew in the hole. Not when there was work to be done. And he certainly wasn't going to let a roofy rider or a dethroned Credit Suisse exec handicap his PR dreams. To even call what I had with the warden a power dynamic was false. The phrase implies an exchange between two parties, and I had nothing to give. No. To truly shirk my duties, I would need to self-harm enough to land in medical, to reach what Dr. Edwards called total incapacitation and bodily surrender. Would it come to that anyway, by the hands of an aggrieved Westbrook contributor seeking retribution? I weighed the immediate threat of disobeying the warden against the generalized threat of obeying him. It wasn't a moral calculus, more a moral arithmetic. My sense of self-preservation favored the specific. As you might expect, thoughts of safety and health are never far from the front of my mind, though there are, of course, the secondary, subcutaneous thoughts, McNary, reputation, and, at a level just above inchoate nonsense, those tertiary, bone-deep thoughts, lust, anger. These are never fixed, mind you. They substitute positions with a frequency one might find worrisome or welcome, depending on the position substituted. I fear the theme of regret will become central these last few hours. While nobody could have predicted the chain of events that led to our present situation, I am not above administering a mild scolding toward the warden with respect to what happened after Volume 1, Issue 6, Flora and Fauna. He was there for the first real bit of vituperative criticism, or, rather, there in spirit. Had the warden intervened, I wonder if we might have avoided this terrible ordeal, this teachable moment. I had just put the issue to bed and was enjoying its brief afterglow. The next day I would begin the process anew with a kickoff call to the Oberlin interns. But first I took my daily constitutional about the yard, lazing through a 5K run walk in 0.2K laps between the fence line, the outdoor gym, and the newer basketball court. Pre-dawn storms had broken the dew point, creating a ripeness in the February air and a visual sharpness in the landscape. If I squinted, I could just make out the interstate on the thin hump of land across the valley. As I hit my ambler's high on the twenty-second lap, rounding the basketball court and the Brotherhood's chess matches, stoic affairs with whole minutes of thoughtful chin-scratching, one of the Hispanics broke from the deadweight station and stabbed me. A quick pull to the love handles with, by the initial feel, a whittled-down pen cylinder. Later one of the nurses would inform me the injury would have been severe had the wily assailant practiced the pinball pull of twisting his wrist upon removal. Not a shiving out of anger, then. On my way to the ground, I clutched the wound and exclaimed, Good God, I've been stabbed! It wasn't too far from the spot where good old Lopez was himself shivved. 
I suppose everything here becomes a pattern if you're in long enough. I felt the first rivulets of warm blood run over my fingers and onto the soft-hewn runner's trail. As was custom, most of the bystanders let me be. The brothers noted their positions, folded up their boards, and moved to the picnic benches. The men at the weights continued their reps. Then a figure appeared, blotting out the sun, and dropped something onto my face. I recognized the smell and feel of the new seventy-pound paper stock, Volume 1, Issue 5, Dreams, and turned my head to let it slip to the ground, I remember, taking a moment to silently compliment our new printer, a century-old family operation out of Iceland. The figure crouched down. I saw the osito, his gold crucifix tickling my forehead and, as he peered closer, my nostrils. I unconsciously inhaled and hoovered the edge of the crucifix into my nose, along with the odor of the sweat-soaked weight bench a few feet away. One of Diosito's lieutenants remained standing to his left. I'd seen the man around, but couldn't recall his name. Both sported a constellation of neck tattoos. In a creepy bit of stagecraft, Diosito remained silent while the other man spoke. Eh, hey, papi, why nothing on the kings in your little book? The Latin American voice is invalid or something? I started to reply, but he continued, Did you know Diosito's niece's boyfriend is a gardener for Luis Guzman? Or is that not interesting to you? My mind flashed back to the half-hour sensitivity training at the Bernays, and I said, I remember, Gentlemen, I hear you. I hear you and I respect you. But what do you want me to do? A folio edition or some... At this point, the Osito grabbed my face and delivered what I believe is called the little butterfly, a rather painful cleaving of the lower lip with a vertical incision at its center. The shock of it left me with a rather stupid expression on my face, utterly unprofessional despite the pain. Max Perkins, give me strength. I may have said, huevos noches, before I passed out. I came to in medical with Dr. Edwards' successor hovering beside me. It was clear He'd been instructed by the warden to closely monitor my recovery. God, I loved medical. It was my favorite room in Westbrook, before the completion of the media center. First, the lighting. There was a softness to the air absent everywhere else inside. They hadn't yet switched the old bulbs for the sterile CLFs. Perhaps administration simply forgot. Second, and this is not trivial, the on-duty nurse's desk could be viewed from any of the recovery beds through a four-by-eight-foot plate-glass window separating the two rooms. The nurse herself was nothing to speak of, an old Greek hag who nobody had ever, ever seen rise from her chair. But her desk! She was addicted to those Facebook games which incorporated the latest celebrities into arcade classics. You know, the Oscar nominees rendered as Tetris blocks, or the G8 leaders recast as Mario Kart drivers. I cannot explain why this fascinated me so, but I would strain my neck for hours to glimpse the nurse's desktop and her equally insatiable appetite for such entertainment. Perhaps, now that I think of it, there was something nostalgic about those games, nostalgic and at the same time informative. Whatever the reason, I took joy in watching the heads of Michael Caine and Amanda Seyfried tumble in an endless pixelated waterfall. I was returned to my cell that evening, 
My convalescing lip protruded and pursed in the gesture of a kiss, an expression that earned catcalls from pretty much everyone in E-Block. MF got Botox, the better to kiss Gertie's ass with. As for the laceration on my left side, it was nothing more than a lingering sensitivity and a few days of wine-dark urine. Diosito intended to scare me, nothing more. And in many ways, the most unnerving aspect of the entire experience was the tickle of his crucifix in my nostrils. Naturally, I included the Latin King's submissions in subsequent issues. I instructed the Oberlin interns to fast-track anything from Diosito, Manuel Garcia, Juan Garcia, Martin Oval, or any of their associates, and I felt and still feel, for the most part, this was a worthy compromise. Nothing stays pure forever and at least we remained advertising-free. The warden had brought that up around Volume 1, Issue 10, Paradise. There was intense interest, cigarette companies mostly, but the board of directors forbade it. There was a loud smash against the exterior windows just a moment ago. A bird? People breaking in? No, that's too rich, even for my blood. Ah, I see. According to Twitter, it was a slingshot iPhone sent with an excessive velocity by the appeals. My fans, my true fellowship, I hear you. You have been there from the beginning, and it brings a tear to my eye and a catch in my throat to have you here at the end. My feed is rife with hashtag solidarity selfies, hundreds of earnest readers sporting pins of split black ribbon, apparently the official protest accessory for the riot and or preservation of the legacy of the holding pen. It's unclear. At the risk of advertorial, the pins are just two dollars at the appeals merch table. My friends and allies, feel free to volley as many smartphones as you can spare. Perhaps one will crash through, though it's not likely. I tried the windows with a few iMacs myself. There, again. Another smashed phone. It is the sound of protest, a percussive accompaniment to your improvised Negro spirituals. Bookum bookum in the wheat. Someday parole's gonna come. I'm emboldened. I can see from WBCS's footage the detritus of several phones around the perimeter of E-Block and the media center. It appears as though the streetwear label Supreme is shooting a lookbook out there as well. At Fresh Pressed and at Dr. Marbles tell me the label is quite savvy. I direct the reader to their Instagram feed. One model is reading a vintage Boy Scout handbook in front of the burning A-block. Another is staring into the middle distance and chewing gum with bovine exactitude. And a third young man is standing just behind the WXHY reporter, mouthing along to the woman's reports in near-perfect pantomime. Good for them. I suppose. The WXHY reporter's oval face and heavy stage makeup reminds me of Betsy. I can't help it, and I wish it were otherwise. She has the same high forehead, and, well, now that I recall, Betsy's forehead is quite different. The reporter looks nothing like her. People are always reminiscent of someone until you really look. The last time I saw Betsy, in person, that is, it was quite a memorable afternoon, which I credit to a revisionist somberness, revised in the light of her betrayal, and not because it happened to be my last sexual encounter with a woman. The warden inferred all he needed from spying Betsy's name on my visitor's carbons, since early January she'd visited every two weeks with clockwork precision, 
and he told me, with his repugnant Dutch grin, that I'd be receiving my visitors in A block henceforth. He needn't have said anything more. A block housed the least violent offenders, a real milk-toast lot kept mostly separated from C, D, and E blocks. A block didn't need perspex dividers. They even had a small room retrofitted for conjugal visits. I should note before I commence with the well-earned erotic reverie that I do not wish to slander Betsy Pankhurst. I aim to rise above her own slander of me in providing my official accounting of events as they happened. She may take to the morning shows and attempt to spin what I've shared here, but I am beholden only to you, to you and to the truth. Also, I will be dead by then. The warden relayed my good news on the first Thursday in March. I had three days to obsess over Betsy's visit, though my obsession was misdirected, or at best futile. To explain, for some reason I became fixated on her pubic hair. It filled my thoughts and dreams. I imagined, I remember, her hair silken from long baths, enriched by products with French names and imbued with botanicals, whatever botanicals are. A two-inch tuft better kempt and more loved, I dare say more respected, than anything in Westbrook. More than anything in life, really. Even starving African children, if they could see that treasured pubis, threaded by the evening light through A-block's cross-hatched windows, rising and falling with each breath, each and every child would say, Keep your money, buy more botanicals, this is the bush of a goddess. The visit began similar to the others she'd made. I'm not sure she even noticed our new arrangement, side by side at a plastic picnic table affixed to the ground. She launched into conversation by relaying her mother's good fortune, apparently Dr. Pankhurst, a respected veterinary radiologist with a mid-sized practice in Stamford, had been awarded Field and Stream's top ranking in their annual Best Doctors issue. I watched as she talked and talked. There was an anecdote about a woman named Tiana. Betsy had seen her at security intake a few times and they'd become friendly. Thinking about it now, it may have been Francisco's girl. And Betsy had invited Tiana to a dinner party she was hosting. Tiana showed up early with pigs and blankets and something else. I can't remember. The gist of the story is somebody stole pills from the medicine cabinet. Betsy and her two roommates confronted the guests over peach cobbler. There was a painful minute of silence with eyes on Tiana until one of the roommate's boyfriends admitted he'd swallowed all the Xanax because he found you all so terribly boring. I chuckled to let Betsy know I was listening. It was then Wooderson caught my eye. He gave the slightest nod to the left, well, his right, my left, and I intuited at once what was happening. Listen, I told Betsy. I believe this might be the only time we can do this. It's a lot to ask. Here I should admit I will provide details only in counterpoint to what you may see or hear about in Handcuffed, as we both know I am and have always been a model of propriety, a model of restraint. It is also worth noting we had but ten minutes of privacy. Wooderson said they were backed up for the day. I instinctively cursed, thinking of those lax A-blockers' discourteous approach to time. Betsy mistook my umbrage for a minor act of rebellion against Wooderson himself and squeezed my hand as we crossed the threshold, as it were. The room itself was nothing special. An old couch against the back wall, 
condom resting on one arm and a folding card table in the center. I dashed to the couch and tossed the cushions to pull out the folded bed frame underneath, only to discover the steel arms had locked shut with overuse or perhaps misuse. Betsy helped me reset the cushions. It was then I realized we hadn't said anything. It was all understood. I see now this wasn't my golden opportunity. It was hers. She knew at once the material the occasion would provide. In any case, we disrobed with alacrity and assumed the missionary position. I'm not sure why that one in particular. It was, of course, a total mistake, owing to a lump in the couch which pitched her lower back up and her pelvis down, such that I couldn't lower my own hips enough to enter and penetrate upward. I was like a child reaching up into a vending machine, the prized bag of chips just out of reach. Further complicating matters was the small band-aid just above the nipple of her left breast. I wanted to ask about it. I became obsessed with asking about it, but knew this was not the time, and in truth, I may have simply been allowing myself to get distracted. I was never one for focus when it was most demanded of me. Betsy made a circular motion with her index finger. We flipped over, she on top. I came. She did indeed have a wonderful pubis, perhaps the only authentic and beautiful part of Betsy Pankhurst. Certainly not her post-coital manner, a raising of the eyebrows implying all sorts of performance-related anxieties best not made explicit here. She pretended to look at her watch, dismounted, and did me the courtesy of tying off the condom. If memory serves, we left it on the card table. That's it. What I summarized in one paragraph somehow merited nineteen pages in handcuffed, and I swear if she'd voiced any complaints with respect to pleasure on her part, I would have obliged however I could in the time allotted. I should also note there was no BDSM play and no crying out for mother. I do recall spying a curlicue of my own chest hair on her modest cleavage. It remained while she put her clothes back on, a companion for the walk back to her roommate's Honda Civic back to her ivy-dressed campus, back to her apartment and its institutional fluorescence. So much in common. My follicular emissary would tickle her during post-colonial lit seminars and cling for dear life during gin-fueled intercourse with the Cornell PhD candidate-slash-fuck-buddy. I do remember our pillow talk, as it were. We were more efficient than I'd thought, or perhaps Wooderson was doing me a solid. I inquired about her studies, she demurred and said it wasn't very interesting. Betsy asked if anti-Semitism was a problem inside. There were a few white nationalists, I replied. They beat or stabbed guys every now and then, but so did everyone else. Judaism seemed an affront equal to getting a better portion on Sloppy Joe Day. Besides, Steve bought his weed from the Muslim brothers, which to my mind indicates a flexible orthodoxy, or at least a pragmatic one. Everyone adapts, is my point. It's a strength, the Hilton Hotel's advance man told me. The world is always changing. You have to be ready for it. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, hard-headedness leads to zealotry, and zealots, besides making for the worst dinner-party conversationalists, choose conflict at their own expense. Betsy was disappointed by my comments, I remember. She asked if McNary was circumcised. I said what we do is private. Many of you have been asking about hate crimes, and, yes, you'd hear the stories. 
There were stories about everything. Reports of PM lineup shifts tended toward the dramatic. It's gang retribution. He disrespected him. You put Dominicans and Puerto Ricans together, what do you expect? I once overheard Costas telling another screw it was a cyclical thing, like allergy season, which I'm inclined to believe. That was the last time I saw Betsy in the flesh. The supposed halcyon days ended with a lumpy couch and a chat about skinheads. She was wearing a tweed skirt and an orange merino sweater, perhaps a vintage find, and black leggings, a pair of duck boots. Did she already have the book deal in hand? Was it all a ploy? Did I break through the icy exterior? I'll never know. The last thing she said to me, with lightness in her voice and an ominous insouciance, Okay, then. With the clarity of impending death, I can now grasp the full measure of my time with Betsy. The five visits, the seventeen letters, the frantic consummation. How she turned these meager scraps into a 480-page tell-all is a feat to rival the best reality TV. Though I've often thought of something she said in that first visit, which felt complimentary in the moment, but has since taken on the gray shade of disappointment. You're different than I thought you'd be. In my remaining time, these precious minutes and, do I dare hope, hours, I must not grant Betsy Pankhurst any more screen time than she's already rested from this, the final issue. Though I will say it is not surprising to see the Cornell PhD candidate standing with Bronwyn Taylor in protest, I recognize him from Katie Couric's primetime interview. In the segment, he's dressed in a box-fresh white button-down and jeans, holding Betsy's hand, possibly the most unnatural pose for two people on a couch. From the Ethan Allen decor, I assume it was filmed in the living room of her thesis advisor's Tudor-style mansion. Yes, we watch Katie Couric. No, it's not a sex thing. We respect her ease with interview subjects and her hardball approach. I must question the Cornell PhD candidate's motives for joining the GSSR in light of what I surmise are very recent correctives to his assumptions vis-à-vis -vis relationship exclusivity with Betsy Pankhurst. On the other hand, she does like her men radicalized. The GSSR's chants are indistinguishable online and drowned out by helicopters IRL. My guess is it's a supererogatory pop-tune Taylor commissioned from a Jack Antonoff type. A quick search on Spotify confirms my suspicion. My Horizons, Your Dreams by Miguel, featuring Bronwyn Taylor and Carly Rae Jepsen. While I applaud their conviction, I wonder why the GSSR doesn't simply stop reading the publication or divert their enthusiasm to one of the many also-rans that have debuted in the last six months. There's Bars, a rather impressive quarterly from Annandale, outside of Boston, which, to cite their website's about page, wishes to apply a critical lens to the post-Ficoldian unself-imprisonment of the post-human, likely a reference to Annandale's population's Fitbits, some startup founder's tax write-off, and demarcate an aesthetics apart from the farrago of so-called penal literature. It goes on for another 10,000 words. You get the idea. As a brief aside, and to respond to all the tweets about bandwagon jumping, I truly and definitively do not mind such efforts. I look upon it with the respectful gaze of a friendly patrician. Yes, even Annandale's forthcoming symposia with its corporate sponsors and facile programming, Damien Eccles and Frederick Jameson in conversation. Regarding such exegesis, however, my own principles are well established. In keeping with the tenets of the new criticism, 
I reject the life of the author or the life of the editor, as it were, and ask my readers to do the same. To be honest, I'm a little relieved to know I'll soon be dead and free of interference, however unintentional. At the risk of Les Majestés, I hope Warden Gurchins is also dead, for this reason only. Well, another reason. Though he and I spoke of it only once, the issue of editorial ownership remains a sticking point. The warden, I remember now, likened me to a midwife, and the holding pen, to extend the metaphor, Westbrook's offspring. We were reviewing my draft of the TOC for either Volume 1, Issue 5, Dreams, or Volume 1, Issue 6, Flora and Fauna. I can't remember which. At some point he leaned back in his Wegener chair and expounded upon the unique circumstances under which my so-called intellectual property had been manifest, specifically as the output of inmate work detail, which is of course subsidized by the state and federal taxes. The holding pen is best thought of as an allodial fixture under Westbrook sovereignty, a self-enclosed nebulous commonwealth. 